the way. And oh, look, we're live already. Jimothy, how are you doing, sir? I'm very well. I noticed that you uh, you started the stream there by sniffing. The first yeah. thing people are going to see is, <laughs> welcome to Nietzsche. <laughs> we did, did a load of cocaine and now we're like going to talk about Nietzsche for a bit. So I hope everyone is ready. Yeah, that's a viral video. Let's go. What? Oh, for God's sake, dude. Oh, whoops. Yeah, we have to straight away hop into it. So as people are gathering, as we're gathering the flock to uh, discuss a little bit about Nietzsche, I guess we must uh, we must go to your neck of the woods, you know, and, this, and, and take a... I, I found this, this interesting picture online, and this was actually apparently a real picture that came out of a real camera. Like, this isn't a drawing or anything like that, you know, so... So it was, this is a main street in Manchester, man. I, I don't know. Do you recognize this place at all? Uh, actually, yes, I do. That looks that looks very similar. There is a Greg's and a job center next to each other, very close to where I live. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's spot on. If I, I went to Manchester City Center the other day and I saw three Greg's within like very close proximity to each other, and I could not stop crying with laughter. <laughs> what is Greg's, man? I actually don't even know what Greg's he's, is. He's going to get sandwiches, are like slightly better quality than Tesco sandwiches, but it's the lines are out the door because the northern is in it they want their fucking gregs <laughs> so it's a sandwich bar is it it's just sandwiches as far as i can tell i've been in once and was like this is remarkably average and then left i don't get it dude holy shit by the way people anybody who's new we are here to talk about nietzsche do not worry but we've just got to go through a bit of uh of social studying you know we have to do a bit of a demographic study and check out the populations get a bit of a sense for the norths here as you can see these are specimens nietzschean specimens look at it look at these rolls of muscle around this man's neck it's it's fucking beautiful <laughs> i just see what the newspaper is called it's just fat cunt <laughs> fat cunt the north the north i think my favorite one here though is the shagaloof coupon so i don't know how versed people are in um british or even irish culture but there's a place down in spain so spain has been essentially infected by northerners because they have all these beautiful coastal towns and they have these like sections cordoned off with beaches and everything that are essentially tourist sections and the Irish and the British and maybe the French as well. But I think it's mainly the Irish and the British. What we do during the summer is we go down there and we get absolutely just destroyed. Like so many of uh, everybody has stories about Magaluf. That's this place. And they all yeah. call it Shagaluf because everybody goes down there, gets drunk and then just ends up being uh, quite hedonistic and promiscuous, to say the least. Yeah, go watch Love Island if you want to see what that looks like. Love Island, it, it would either be the north or it'd be down uh, down London way, like Essex and stuff like that, which is it's just plain disgusting. But yeah, it's either uh, Shagaloof or it's Ibiza, and everyone always goes with the boys or with the gals. Sole intention is just drinking and getting, uh, we'll say, penetrated in multiple places at the same time. <laughs> and it's it's not elegant. Everyone does the same thing. It doesn't make you a special boy. It's just it's just pathetic, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so on that theme, I thought uh, we should check out a, a, a North when they make it down <laughs> to this neck of the woods. <laughs> and here's here's a North with a suntan. And now I recognize this suntan because I often get it as well. I specifically like the tan lines. I think they're I, I get that too. Yeah, I get it on my arms when I roll my sleeves up. I burn crazy. It's just like that. <laughs> and I love how the North is uh, very, very respectful in learning the culture. I'll have Uno Biro and a large portion <laughs> of chips, please, lass. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me when my, apparently my father went to Germany once and he learned one phrase, which was, um, ich, ich bin eine grosse Bier bitter. And that was it. Just, can I have a beer? So it's exactly the same fecking thing. I think gross is big beer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm grosse Bier bitter. That's it. That's all, that's all you need to know, though, to be fair. And in I this actually... case, it's like uh, Carling and Greg's at a munchie box. Yeah, is there a Greg's down here, yeah? <laughs> 
<laughs> Jim Nonsense having a, a Greg's, do you? Oh, thank you, lass. All right. Thanks, thanks for sending me in the right direction. Um, oh, he also doesn't look human either. <laughs> this, I think this 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 face is my favorite North, to be honest, man. Like this North is definitely the best one because it's I don't know, the face just looks so brilliant. Look at this size of them cheeks. <laughs> um so let's see oh and this is one that you were so this is um this is oh i had a, I had a i had a whole theme dreamt up about this but i've actually forgot it but it was something to do with uh i don't know young all right it's just a funny photo i forget now <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is what the ion ledge is where everyone comes in thinking to learn about young but honestly if you hop in the boyo discord this is all or one of the big things people are doing it's carl young dragging you away from nutting profusely yes and all that happens Carol Young dragging you away from sin, just like the North. I guess we're getting dragged away from Magaluf. I forget why I put this picture in here. <laughs> yeah, you should have sort of propped over the people on the bed with Greg's. They yes. dragged the North away from Greg's. Oh, do you know what it was? It's because we've got all that controversy going on with the the fegging, the pedophilia and all that stuff in the, the very top of the game. I'm sure you're hearing all this. And it turns out that nonce is that type of insult. So the, the Norths are taking a stance. And they're, they're calling everybody out. So we have uh, B&Q here being like, well, 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 Fort Hughes was meeting with a 13-year-old girl for sex, didn't you? you fucking aren't. You're under citizen's arrest. Reel him in, Daza. <laughs> Warned you, Kev. And then uh, and Luke's, or whatever he says, this dude says, fuck off, Luke. <laughs> oh, it's, it's so funny. I'm not following your plot, though, at all. I think I'm going to... I think I've kind of lost it. Damn, I forgot to plot properly. This is just going to be a mess. Um, and then this is this is this is the this. I think this is to do with Brexit. There's there's this whole um, culture around the Norths that they're they're pro Brexit. And because I think we did in the first Nietzsche lecture, they were like really big into uh, really big into uh, fucking what's his face, the British Empire and all that. So there there's loads of these turning point Gregs. You have. <laughs> Lads from the locals mean like, if the lefties that share our memes think we're thickos, <laughs> what do they think they're doing for shit degrees? And then you've got middle FC and North FC killing you. Oh Baz and Abdul United turning kids into pofters. <laughs> in races just don't what? Oh, wait. Don't, I'm, I'm not in it. I'm in it races. Just don't rate kebabs. <laughs> Here's a good one as well. This new you nonce remainers. <laughs> Are my races if I like kebabs? Yeah, I didn't think so. Simple as big Ron. <laughs> <laughs> Thing is, I'm, I'm on the side of, uh, of of Brexit, so I'm sort of lumping myself in with those. But it is. Yeah, it's you're a typical Northman. Do you do you think I'm not selecting these because they're not like you, man? This is this is it. This is this is no, parody. You have no plan. I mean, don't pretend like you have a plan. <laughs> Lay out this exquisite plot where you need to have a high IQ to understand. It's just yeah, that was that was a bit of a failed plot. Was this is because we were talking about the soul? I think all I was doing in that one was being quite abstract. The way Nietzsche spatters out aphorisms in a very um in a very generalized way, and they don't they don't tend to have a, th a thread. It's hard to pull the thread together. It's like kind of collage in some sense but that was that's what i was doing there i was showing a collage of what your soul looks like like this is what you are you know these are various scenes from your life and and opinions you have well i think uh, some people are actually going to believe you they're actually going to believe you from this i ain't racist how can i be racist if i like kebabs i, yeah. I, I i'm not racist i just don't like the foreigners it's fucking simple as mate <laughs> i'm not racist just don't like them yeah that's... i just don't like the brown people mate they smell funny fucking get me <laughs> Are we going to talk about Nietzsche today or not? 
Yeah, let's go for Nietzsche. Here's Nietzsche on the soul. Here's Nietzsche on the soul. So, so far we've been doing genealogy and morals. This is the completion of the first essay. So there's three essays in genealogy of morals. The first one is about the master-slave dichotomy, or shall you say dialectic, or whatever you want to call it, the fight between those two. The second one is the discussion of guilt and conscience, and that's a very interesting essay. That's one that, that essay is actually unbelievable in the amount that it influenced um, the, the rest of the, the 20th century. Freud, Jung, they all pulled stuff out of this. Like this is almost like the foundation of psychoanalysis. And actually through reading through this last chunk of genealogy of morals, I began to understand how so much of what we did with Jung was actually found, like so much of what Freud did, which created Jung and all that was was rooted in what Nietzsche was doing. Nietzsche was in some sense a psychologist par excellence. He was probably one of the first. He was one of the first people to start asking questions about how the human mind works and the biases inherent in the human mind and really articulate them in, the, in a profound way he's doing. And so quite a lot of what this lecture is going to be about is the way that we fool ourselves and how that relates to, quote unquote, slave morality. And um, the third essay is then his discussion of how you need to get intellectual elites, what, what, what they need to be, what the high priest priests need to be and he's sort of suggesting through this that the high priests we have now are resentful but how could we get um high priests that were not resentful that were shall we say strong character in that type of sense so it's it's super interesting the way he puts the whole story together this is the conclusion of this first idea of the resentful versus the strong and the healthy and talking about that fight and quite a big part of this is going into the discussion of the soul and what it means to be a person and how we've constructed entire worldviews. Like, you know, I, I, it would be easy to say religions. You'd say, oh, Christianity or Judaism or, or Islam or whatever is all about like the soul and all this nonsense. But Nietzsche is poignant to point out that like democracy has this implicit inside of it. Liberalism has this implicit inside of it. Pretty much everything we think nowadays, like even though I'm saying democracy and liberalism, people be like, oh, this is right wing against the left wing. That's 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 great or that's bad or whatever like that. But Nietzsche's adamant to suggest that um, nationalism is just on the other side of the same, like it's almost like they're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Like the whole idea of democratic nationalism is, is founded in that idea of... Uh, everybody has a right and a soul and all this stuff. And then the people on the liberal side are, are, are suffering from the same, what Nietzsche would call is bias or mistake. So this is going to be a very challenging set of ideas. And again, we're just presenting Nietzsche's thoughts. We're not racist. We're just presenting <laughs> Nietzsche's thoughts. <laughs> so uh, whatever you think about this, uh, try be observant. He's Because I'm getting a lot of people giving feedback, getting a lot of great, like some fantastic feedback coming on these. But there are a few people being like, holy shit, this stuff is just so fucking intense and hardcore and all that. And and what you got to do is postpone judgment in some sense and just observe. Because that's what Nietzsche was doing. He was observing without judging. He was withholding this thing saying this. He, and this is something he talks about a lot, is that he was stopping himself from saying this is how the world should be. And he was instead saying, this is how the world is. And a lot of people go into all fields of knowledge. They're going through their lives and they say the world should be this way. As we're going to discuss, the slaves often say the world should be this way. It should be less, quote unquote, evil. But instead, they should be focusing on saying 
this is how the world is. And from there, what can we conclude? What can we deduct? So, Jimothy, any thoughts? Have you um, had a chance to read this section or have you, have you any thoughts on this or what's going on? Yep, I've read through. Um, is this still Essay 1, by the way? Essay 1, Essay 1. Yeah, yeah, I've read through all of Essay 1. It's um, it's very, very intense. I think it gets more persuasive when you get through into Essay 2 and Essay 3. But in this, this first one, it does indeed get very, very intense talking about the soul. Now, when you go into stuff like this, I think you have to make it crystal clear what he means by a soul. Because the idea of, say, an individual having some capacity within him that you should respect, he's not saying take that away from somebody. He's talking about a soul in a metaphysical sense. So as you go through this, Stefan, I'm going to listen very, very carefully to what you're saying so that I can pinpoint any points of contention or anything I'd want you to explain further. For myself yes. and for everybody else watching this, because soul is such a broad word and we'd have to break down what that means. Because if you suddenly say everyone doesn't have a soul, does that mean I can treat you any way I want? And, you know, apart from the northerners who clearly don't have souls, I think Jesus southerners, southerners do have souls. So we, so we have to sort of make that distinction as we go through. So I'm looking forward to this. Let's go. I think that was that was quite a racist statement, was it? I'm not racist. I just, I just, I just don't like him. I Simple don't know. Asthma. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to side with the Norse from now on. They, they are my they are my kin. I see them. Us Irish and us Norths. None of this. None of this. Um, you will racism. change your mind the second you come over to Manchester. I swear to God. I swear to God. Okay. Okay. Well, until that, let's discuss Nietzsche's conception of what it means to be a person, and he really, really, really is trying to change the frame here. Because we think that this is an argument about subjectivity, about what it is to experience the world, what it is to be a person. But he, he starts with a metaphor, and he says. The mistake that we often make is we 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 try separate the idea of lightning from its flash. So when we see the flash that lightning gives off far off in the distance, we assume that that's uh, that's something that's separate from the, the the energy, the electricity that created that lightning or created that flash. And he's using this metaphor to describe the way that we think our actions and our behaviors are somehow separate from our instincts, our, the, the burning fire within us. So to extend this metaphor, we have this notion of our behavior is separate from our feelings, our, our desires, our wants, our, 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 as I was saying, our instinct and what he calls it, the will to power. So you would imagine that everybody has within them this burning libido, as we discussed before, the willst du mach, this lightning inside of you. And this, this appears in your mind as the urges to go do things. And these urges are usually like conquer, take, overcome, create, build, expand. These, these is what Nietzsche would call our life um, life-seeking instincts and he says later on that happiness is the feeling of allowing or these these life-seeking instincts being satisfied these life uh, creating instincts succeeding in their aim they urge you to to expand and grow and become bigger in the world and when they succeed in doing that you experience the if you wish orgasm of success the orgasm of overcoming the orgasm of expansion and the pain that you feel in life is usually tied to the inability for you to do that. You suffer because you meet obstacles and whatnot. So this is why he's trying to reframe our idea of suffering, saying we shouldn't deify suffering at all, because suffering is simply us meeting challenges. 
and we shouldn't freak out about suffering too much because challenges are inevitable if you're trying to expand, if you're trying to grow, if you're trying to become bigger. But the problem he's saying, and this is where he starts getting into the soul idea, is that we we have this assumption that our behavior is somehow separate from the quantity, the amount of electricity, of lightning within us. So when we have loads of urges to to conquer loads of stuff, that means that we're going to behave in a very masterful, conquerful, like dangerous, dominating way, if you will, because we're full of power. But what the what we sort of assume then is that for some reason we are able to control what we do. Like we're in some way have control over our, the amount of urges that we have. We we get shoved in our heads and said, it's you're responsible for for what you, for how much you want to dominate. And this is how the, the slaves are imposing themselves on the masters in some sense. So James, you following what I'm saying here? I always follow what you say. Yes. Beautiful. So I want to use an example because he, he is a little bit uh, abstract with this, but he says that the lion does not decide to act like a lion. It's not the lion's choice. The lion doesn't say rationally, okay, I shall go conquer. The lion doesn't say, okay, I will go eat that gazelle. The lion does, does, does not say I will go and create a harem of of uh, lionesses or whatnot. He, he has a virile set of instincts that urge him to do this, that urge him to hunt and dominate. And this hunting, this conquering, this dominating, they're expressions of the instinct. There's no break between these two things they are one in the same river that are, that is coming out of his quote unquote if you will soul they are um, coming from that place within him and so all you can do to change his behavior is you can either reduce the amount of energy he has make him sick degrade him and damage him reduce the amount of libido life force he has in him so you could as i said stop feeding him stop giving him a life force or, or maybe inject him with a virus or something like that or you could increase it you could like jab him full of steroids or something like that and um, you could fill him full of testosterone that would make him be, do this more you can't turn around to him and say uh, like say stop doing this you have to actually fundamentally tackle the root that's the only way you can change this thing and so we are in some sense built or made out of our instincts. That is what is our fundamental reality. More so, if you want to talk about a soul, he would call this the soul, this emotion, this instinct that burns within us. And so the weak, what they do is they separate these two, two things out psychologically because they don't have strong instincts. And so they need to disarm the dangerous masters like as you would you're 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 afraid of these these lions you need to stop the lion from wanting to dominate because you're the the one who suffers that you're the obstacle that he will crush and so it's in mightily in your interest to 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 cut that lion off to to stop him from acting the way he's acting and so you start to turn on him and say you must you know, you must stop acting this way. This behavior is evil. You try to separate it out, but what can you I, do... Uh, can I, can I, can I just, sorry, can I just butt in for one second just yeah, to okay. clear something up? So when you're talking about, it, oh, clearly the lion is a metaphor for the masters. What instincts would you say specifically that the masters have that the slaves want to shut down? Would you just say the, the will to dominate and the will to a political type of power or are there other things too? I would, I would actually say that this isn't the, inst the lion isn't the master. I would say that everybody has these instincts within them just some people would have more some people would have less you okay what i'm saying so so what what, uh, what are the instincts is it just to dominate then in this well instance? so this is this is a a tough one I mean, i'm not sure i've completely figured out but he's saying it's the the vils to max uh, vils to max and that's fundamentally the desire to grow the desire to expand the desire to do all the things that are life 
Life wants to get bigger. Life wants to get stronger. Life wants to create. Life wants beauty. Life wants power. Life wants expansion. All those things. So it's it's actually quite a simple instinct. It's just bigger, better, faster, stronger. That type of idea, you know. Okay. It's okay. like it's like the way the worm is got a tiny quantity of will to power and that takes it through the world. But then the lion is through eating other animals accumulated a var a far vaster and more noble looking being. And it's therefore expanding in that way. It's like it's like the energy that brings you to the gym where you're like, I want to get bigger. And it's like, why? And you're like, I don't know. There's just for some reason, when I'm bigger, I feel healthier. I look better and people treat me nicer. You know, it's just there's something quite intuitive about it, you know? Mm, yeah. OK, that makes sense, I guess, because in human beings, we have an instinct to reproduce. But oftentimes, which is, I guess, why religions focus an awful lot on sexuality. But you can pathologize the instinct towards sexuality very effectively so the prominent example of that is internet pornography for example so if that was an instinct and we have an instinct to go and reproduce and it's pathologized by something it would make sense that Nietzsche would throw that away therefore you've got to not use the word instinct and instead use will to power I'm going to guess that's why he went with will to power instead of instinct specifically well he talks about instincts a lot I'm not I don't think he's saying that uh, these instincts can't be pathologized and I guess if you're honest with yourself porn is not the example of um you actually enacting your instinct properly like it is he does uh, he will get to this later the idea that he people think that he's being immoral he's being a nihilist in some sense and saying oh uh, the, you know the, the instincts mean nothing or or nothing means anything and he's saying that there is actually virtue to be found in these things you do have responsibility to tame these control these and direct these but, yes so something like porn is is um most certainly a pathologization, but it's not a example of an instinct reaching its fulfillment. Porn is actually watching someone else. It's almost cuckoldry, if you will. It's watching yep. someone else do the behavior, whereas ideally you'd want to be like the 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 very, very interesting scenario that happened in Spain about four or five, maybe six thousand years ago when uh, I believe it was the Yamana, who people call the Indo-Europeans, I think, went into Spain. And we have the records that the native males completely vanished at that point. They stopped reproducing. And then these new people who came in became 100% of the white chromosomes that now exist in Spain. So that's implying that a very small group of people came in and did some very naughty things. And um, yes. it's, that, it's that type of idea, you know? Yeah, it's, it's the responsibility thing when reading Nietzsche. That's always a question in my head because it's like, clearly you should go and become a juicy boy over then at the same time you need to enact responsibility. So I'm going through and thinking to myself, by what criteria should I judge where to go with instinct and where to go with responsibility? Example being, if you've got a wife or you've got a, a concubine, whatever, you've got a woman who you've bred with and you've got a kid, your instincts would simultaneously be to look after that kid and invest your resources into it. As that is a, I imagine that is an innate instinct rather than a patriarchal whatever uh, uh, construction. But you'll also have instincts to go and breed with beautiful other women and continue spreading your genes. So that question is like, should I breed with the women and spread my genes or should I invest in this child? Like, what's the criteria specifically? I don't, I haven't come across Nietzsche giving criteria in that regard. So yeah, that's why I threw this stuff out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's hard to know, but... I guess like the, the idea is the ideal, the, the, the four, like, you know, the 15 year old ideal is that you have all the resources and you're like an ancient king and like Solomon, you know? And so you, you can, you can uh, supply to, you can provide for many, many children. That yes. type of thing. That, yes. That's that way of thinking. I guess that's the raw expression of the instinct. And back in the natural world, as I was saying, that's how it worked. Like these Yamana, these Indo-Europeans, I'm not sure if it was the Yamana, but anyway, it was, these people came into Spain 
and they were a small elite warrior class but they had all the resources and so what they could do is they could literally just breed with all the women and supply for them all and it was mm. that simple simple as mate you know simple as baza says it's simple as <laughs> yes yes and then that, that makes sense because only one two three small number of individuals can actually do that in a proper manner hence why you have to have slaves it's, it's an inevitability of a of our current political systems okay that makes sense you may continue on with your beautiful story <sighs> jesus lord so we need to discuss how the weak flip this in its head how the weak they they look at this flash and they say that's separate from the lightning they turn to the master and say those behaviors you're doing they're bad and then you must stop doing them and that's that's almost assuming that that's to be to be full of energy is not the same as to act full of energy they're saying that okay yeah you're full of energy you're full of testosterone you're full of health and all that but that doesn't mean you're allowed to act evil and the problem there is Nietzsche saying no no it it, it is a causative um it is a a derivative a derivative of being full of energy you're going to do these things you're going to seek more power more strength bigger will you're going to seek these things you the lion is going to do this stuff the only way you can stop that is by calling it off and so the weak I'm very, very unconsciously, a lot of this is not them consciously doing this. The weak then start to pathologize their behavior. And it, in some sense, because they want to disarm them, in some sense, this by a roundabout way starts to cu cut off the will to power inside the quote unquote, the master. So what they do is they say, you know, expressing your desire is, is, is evil and conquering is evil, dominating is evil. So what you need to do is you need to understand that all those feelings that arise in your in your in your body in your mind in your soul that's asking you to dominate me to dominate the world to dominate other people that's actually satan that's satan's inside of you trying to tempt you and so what you need to do is you need to resist satan you need to kill it off and look we've got these tools that will help you we've got fasting we've got this prayer we've got this submission to the gods we've got this way of behaving we've got all these things that will help you defeat satan by killing him off inside you and what that will eventually do is that the master takes this prescription and like we said it's like a virus it makes the lion sick it makes the human sick and they become more tame their will to power gets smaller so therefore their desire to commit these acts gets smaller and they get easier to control the sickness gets worse and eventually we get the modern man as Nietzsche is saying. And so this suits, suits the weak. This is the important thing to understand. This suits the weak is they, because they don't have that inner lightning. They don't have that will to power. They don't have this energy in abundance like uh, a more of a wild man would. And so what they do is they start to reframe all of this as good. It's like, oh, I don't do nasty things. I'm a good person. And I don't, Satan doesn't bother me that much. I'm a quite a good person. And so they, they begin to turn on those desires in a large extent. And that leads them to um, leads them to develop what we could call their theory of the soul, because they suggest that because my lack of action is good, in some sense, the ability to just sit down and not act, not behave, not do, not not express, is uh, a sort of subjective, valuable experience in and of itself. And that's where you start to get the roots of the idea of the soul. Are you somewhat following what I'm saying, sir? 100%, 100%. Uh, it's going to get interesting. Keep going. Oh, I would like you to read this, James, because this is quotes from the man himself. I, I would like to Big allow Fred. Him. Big Fred, yes. All right. <clears throat> that is no reason 
to blame the large birds of prey for carrying off the little lambs. And if the lambs say to each other, these birds of prey are evil, and whoever is least like a bird of prey, and most like its opposite, a lamb, is good, isn't he? Then there is no reason to raise objections to this setting up of an ideal, beyond the fact that the birds of prey will view it somewhat derisively, and will perhaps say, we don't bear any grudge at all towards these good lambs. In fact, we love them. Nothing is tastier than a tender lamb. It is just as absurd to our strength not to express itself as strength, not to be a desire to overthrow, crush, become master, to be a thirst for enemies, resistance and triumphs, as it is to ask weakness to express itself as strength. Do you have any thoughts, sir? Yes, I have a lot about that. I think I um, think I brought that up in the first or the second you one did, of these videos that, that, that we did. Yeah, where it's um, it's it's a way of um, the, the Stoics talked about this quite a lot. Where, um, say for example, that your child dies and you're very sad about your child dying. I, th I can't remember the Epictetus pointed this out. He's like, well, no one else is actually sad that your child's died. So therefore, objectively, it's not a sad thing that the child has died. It's Jesus your perception. <laughs> well, it, it's really really gruesome, but he's got a point. It's like it's your perception that the child died is why it's upsetting you right because you have emotional connection to it and you have the story it's an intangible thing it's not it's not an objective it's just atoms decaying i guess so it's a similar thing here where it's the lamb's perception of the bird and the bird's perception mm. of the lamb it's not an objective thing it depends where you come from and mm. i guess there's a lot of group think that goes into this the lambs and the birds are talking to each other and they sort of reinforce their own their own way of looking at things so the bird sees the lamb and goes you're really tasty. And there's no resentment there, whereas the lambs are resentful that the birds have the gall to exist in the first place. Yeah. Yes, because the the very the very act of being a bird of prey is that you have an abundance of will to power, you have an abundance of lightning that's that's causing you to say, I want to grow into this mighty eagle. And the only way what I'm not gonna do is I'm not gonna eat grass. I'm not going to eat seeds like these other fucking little wimpy birds or that stupid lamb. And it's like, I guess I'm putting a bit of scorn into that, but I guess they're more saying it in a dismissive way, the, the bird of prey. And so the bird of prey says, I will just eat those lambs. They they are tasty. They're a simpler way for me to get to this higher level of power. They they collect all the energy and then I eat them. So it's, it's a good deal. You know, they, they do that. They live a nice life. And then when they've eaten all that grass, I eat them and they've processed the nutrition for me. And then that is their way of expanding and getting bigger in some sense. And so the lamb specifically has a vested interest in seeing everything that the bird does as evil. But what's interesting is the lamb in, in some sense, you know, like maybe you think of a, a smaller bird is probably a better example. The smaller bird eats worms. The smaller bird eats eats seeds. You know, the smaller bird does corrupt smaller beings in some way. It's just that he's not top of the food chain. So his resentment does turn on the, the higher animals. And um, that does lead him to do stuff like grip and say, but I'm valuable. Like I, uh, because I exist, I am a, I am just the simple fact that I exist means I have value. And that's obviously how you would subjectively think. Like you have to believe that your existence matters or else you would die. That's the way our brains are set up. And it might be a bias. Who fucking knows? And this leads to this idea of the soul. And of course, this is how we start seeing the birds of prey as evil because we're like, oh, that what they're doing is they're coming down and they're ending my existence. And to end something's existence is evil. That's unbelievably evil. But then, of course, doesn't the little bird of prey to eat the worms when you ask him, but you eat that little worm. Is, is that not evil as well? And he's like, yeah, but the worms don't have consciousness. You know, the worms aren't like us birds. Us birds are different. Just that bigger bird. He's a bit of a dick. You know what I mean? And so yeah. um, th these little mental games become very interesting and again this whole section is about psychology and this is what uh 
this is what really blew my mind, like going through close reading it, is that I forgot how much Nietzsche was such a good quote unquote psychologist, such a good inspector of the dark recesses of the mind. So, uh, Jimothy, please continue. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. I was going to say, though, you've got to be careful before applying that quote directly to human beings, for example, because in, in the wild, a lamb can't provide any value to a bird unless it is food. They can't work together. They're incapable of doing so. Whereas in human beings, we don't eat other humans. We could. Don't advise it. You could. And it's actually the most nutritious food you could ever have. So there's a case, so, so there's a case to be made for going down the cannibalistic route. <laughs> have you been watching Sparrows again? No, no, I, no, I have not. No, I definitely have not. It's, uh, no, 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 no. But uh, what it, you can make the food chain metaphor with, with a bird of prey being the master on top and the slaves down below, and he's feeding off of them. For example, his, his labor, for example. But then yeah. in, in, in the same regard, the master has to give something back to the slave at the same time, or else there'll be a slave revolt. So in this in this case, you'd have to have the option of the bird and the lamb working together, and also the, the possibility of a lamb uprising, in, which would be very <laughs> funny, in order to apply it directly to humans. So that, that's yes. just my reservations there, but I, but I get the point. The they, they are fair reservations. I guess what Nietzsche is trying to do with these metaphors is explain the psychology. Now, the reality is obviously yeah. a lot more complicated. And he does say, as we said in the last lecture, that as this stuff plays out, the, the quote unquote, the lambs tend to actually take over because they're smarter. And this is how things become interesting and complex is that the masters, despite their beauty and their majesty, are a little bit naive. Whereas the uh, the slaves at least play the long game. They play prudently, they play clever, and that's actually to their credit. Whereas the lamb doesn't have that luxury. The lamb can only run. That's all he can do. He can only hate the, hate the he can only resent the big bird and run. So um, please continue, sir. Yeah, it's just, again, it's interesting. My, <laughs> my father, for example, he eats meat, but he refuses to eat lamb. I asked him why. I said, Daddy, why don't you eat lamb? He's like, because they're cute little baby lambs prancing around the field. It's like, that doesn't make any sense because you still eat piglets and little things like that. And then eventually he turns and go, actually, no, it probably is okay to eat lamb after all. So let's yeah. just put that little oh, thing here. We'll, we'll get into the diet thing in a bit, bro. Do not worry. That is coming. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an absolute head fuck. Okay, the next quote here. Popular morality separates strength from the manifestations of strength as though there were an indifferent substratum behind the strong person which had the freedom to manifest strength or not. But there is no such substratum. There is no being behind the deed, its effect and what becomes of it. The doer is invented as an afterthought. The doing is everything. So this is him fundamentally making that case that we assume that behind our, our behavior, behind our impulses, is this core that is what he calls an indifferent substratum, a, a soul, if you will. You're sort of getting at that idea. We assume that there's this there's this center. And what this center does is this center decides if we are allowed to feel or not. This center de decides. And so I guess what he's trying to poke at is say, we have a conception that our rational mind is this thing. Our rational soul can sit there and decide what we do and how we do it and all that. But he pioneered in some sense this idea that the unconscious is not something that we have access to. And a lot of our thoughts and a lot of our choices and a lot of our feelings come out of the unconscious. They come out of this dark underworld. And it's not an indifferent substratum. It's not a, some type of it's not some type of uh, special place that we have control over. We don't really get to decide where this stuff comes from. It comes out through us. And that is 
And we, it's almost like we just witness these things coming out. And I guess the best thing we can do is learn how to act with them. I guess what he's trying to suggest is that our thinking faculties, we have turned them into a God. And this is quite Jungian in the sense. It's like the ego idea. We have turned it into this, this God, this almighty truth, this, this, is owner of reality but as young noticed in some sense all the ego can really do is notice what's coming out of the unconscious and learn how to ride learn how to surf the waves better so when you get that urge to go take over the world or uh, the, the example james used when you have that urge to go you know nut in millions of women and all that the best you can do is say okay maybe i should focus that nothing on a single beautiful woman and and what and get her and develop a strong family. Just being realistic, because it's it's not it's not as realistic anymore to do what the Yamana did and run down into Spain and kill all the men and then become the only source of uh of uh yeah like you know take over in that way. What you've got to do now is is sort of say something more along the lines of right, I'm going to make a strong family or something like that, and I'm not going to be a, like a sterile running around nutting in like pieces of plastic. And, uh, and uh, assuming that's conquering my will to power, maybe I'll do something like, you know, build a family in that way. So maybe that's the best you can do. The best you can do is learn how to steer the inst instincts. And therefore, this whole idea of of you having a choice, you deciding what comes out of you is, is as he's saying, an afterthought. You are almost like a witness. You are someone who watches what's going on. And your thinking faculties are, in some sense, this tool to help you guide that energy. And that would sort of perhaps make sense evolutionarily. It's not that this this thinking thing on top of you is uh, is is creating this at all. It's a, it's a witness in some sense. Yeah. Is um, so. Is he suggesting in that quote that the strong can only be strong and that the weak can only be weak because the two are exactly the same? If you act strong, that's what you are. The essence of strong. And yeah. if that's the case, therefore, this implies that if the weak can only be weak, then the weak can't become strong over time. Is that? Oh, well, no. I don't. I don't have the rest of the quotes here, but that's what I'd read directly from that one quote, for example. I think you're taking a bit of a, a leap there. The idea is, and we'll get to this later in the idea of health and the idea of improving yourself and the idea of actual self improvement and reaching happiness and all that stuff. You can make yourself act more weak by destroying the will to power, the instinct, the lightning inside of you, the life force. So if you want to a weak person a group of weak people who has this monster strong person who's oppressing them you know the lamb all gather together and say the way we got to stop that bird of prey is by making him sick so what we do is we teach him that all those feelings are satan and he must ignore them and so then he starts to get this internal conflict the the bird of prey and, and Nietzsche later goes on to discuss how this might be related to the idea of the conscience and so uh, it shoves him in his head and suddenly he starts you know fasting to try kill off this satan inside of him that he's been told exists and what that does is that causes him to to weaken that causes him his his life force to go down he does all these physical things that reduce his life force he he, he yeah as we're saying and so what this eventually does is um make him weaker and likewise the the weak could are usually doing quite a lot of this. The weak are, are sinning in the Nietzschean sense of sin. They're literally just missing the mark in terms of health. The weak are fasting. The weak are thinking weak thoughts. The weak are resentful. Resentful is a very, it's a huge energy drain. The weak are just simply not doing the right thing in terms of making themselves healthier and so you know they might be going vegan or something like that they're doing they're doing uh, doing diets that damage them you know or maybe they they have a high grain diet maybe uh, maybe you could be like a keto vegan and be fine but they they do stuff that is not um not serving their health and so if they changed all that stuff then they could actually become stronger 
and then you can increase their life force, then become stronger and start acting more in that way. And, and I think that's what he's trying to suggest is that this stuff isn't largely fixed, but it's not as much of a moral dilemma as it is something like a physiological dilemma. Okay, so the strong act strong because they have a strong will to power, but that can be corrupted, not by an inner weakness, but by other people's influence from their slave morality. Uh, yes, yes. And Sweet, like, okay. I guess he's trying to suggest that slave morality is a consequence of certain psychological realities. So hmm. if, if a strong person loses, he can become resentful and begin to punish himself in some sense. Like it really is about a sense of spirit in some sense. But none, nonetheless, uh, please try this last quote then. No wonder then, my boyos, if the entrenched, secretly smoldering emotions of revenge and hatred put this belief to their own use and, in fact, do not defend any belief more passionately than that the strong are free to be weak and the birds of prey are free to be lambs. In this way, they gain the right to make the birds of prey responsible for being birds of prey. When the oppressed, the downtrodden, the violated say to each other with the vindictive cunning of powerlessness, let us be different from... Your thing is in my way. I can't read that bottom one because you're covering up. You can read the bottom paragraph. Um, vindictive cunning of powerlessness. Let us be different from evil. People, let us be good. And a good person is anyone who does not rape, does not harm anyone, does not attack, does not retaliate, who leaves the taking of revenge to God who keeps hidden as we do, avoids all evil, and asks little from life in general. So this is um, that whole idea of how their psychology is serving them. In some sense, the weak are doing this because they need it to survive. And this is a very interesting idea is that uh, we keep using the, the terms the weak, the powerless, but I think we all do this. Like there's, there, there's, there's all a side of us that is weak and we all experience these moments of weakness and Nietzsche is just abstracting these to their extremes and noting how they play out in society but if you want to make this practical to yourself because Nietzsche is fantastic at scaling this stuff like this is all these are all psychological realities that you are going through as an individual guaranteed and he's just saying oh look how these things play out in the big the big theater if you will and when you're feeling powerless you will do stuff like you will do stuff like say, well, I'm more moral. Like when you're dispossessed and you see other people winning, it's so interesting. And I've done this before. I'd see someone, uh, I see someone killing it, you know, making loads of money and all that, driving around in cars and all that shit. And I'd be like, uh, I'd be like, yeah, but they're not, they're not really, you know, they're not really moral. They're, they're. I, I feel, I'd notice myself saying those sentences, and I'd be like, what, you fucking idiot, you're just as bad as anyone. And it, it's that, um. It's that instinct. You start judging them and you start trying to think of ways that they're not good. And then you're trying to shove yourself back in a position of privilege and saying, look, I may be dispossessed, but I'm still a good person. I'm still the, the righteous. I'm still the, 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 the one who's going to get rewarded in the end. And it's, it's like your brain has learned or maybe our brains have evolved to develop these quote-unquote slave moralities because they actually are useful strategies for getting us to that end. When we start thinking we're moral, that makes us more... Um, disciplined towards uh, towards the, the pain that we experience and we start to become more prudent and play the long game as the naive masters cannot. So when you are weak, 
you you sort of evolve, you adapt your strategy to force you to play long term and be rational and be more objective, which actually gives you a huge advantage over the strong, although you're never conscious that's what you're doing because evolution doesn't want to show you the truth. Evolution, yeah, I've written it here. Evolution has learned that the truth is not as valuable as we make it out to be. In fact, winning with a head full of delusion is more effective than dying with access to the truth. So evolution, life, and your brain is happy to keep you deluded as long as you make it through to the next generation. And hopefully the next generation makes it through to the top. So because the powerless lack this strength to act in the world and express their will to life, they have believed they have to believe that simply existing in an inactive state is an act of virtue. This is what they need to believe. They need to believe that not being able to act is good because they cannot act. When they express their will to power, they meet obstacles and the obstacles beat them. And so they fear obstacles. Deep down, they fear the masters. And so they need to, instead of, instead of like, this just shows you just how much you do rationalizations instead of admitting that I'm not good enough. The profound mental gymnastics we perform in order to avoid that admission. We, we create all this, this interesting way of looking at ourselves where we're like, well, we're, we're still noble. We've still got that soul. We've still got that essence. This is where they begin to castrate all their feelings as not part of themselves, as Satan. And they focus on this rational essence, this, this soul within. They deny the idea that thinking may simply be a tool to assist action and they begin to rationalize. And the weak, as I said, need to remain motivated. They use all these tricks. They tell themselves they have soul so jimmy here's a quote down here what the the grim yes can you read to the very end uh no <laughs> what, what is in the way no it's just that it says uber boy i was talking and it's covering this up if i can if i can no i can't never mind you can read the quote okay this grim state of affairs this cleverness of the lowest rank which even insects possess which play dead in order not to do too much when in great danger has, thanks to the counterfeiting and self-deception of powerlessness, clothed itself in the finery of self-denying, quiet, patient virtue. As though the weakness of the weak were itself, I mean its essence, its effect, its whole unique, unavoidable, irredeemable reality. A voluntary achievement, something wanted, something chosen, a deed, an accomplishment. This type of man needs to believe that needs to believe in an unbiased subject with freedom of choice because he has an instinct of self-preservation and self-affirmation in which every lie is sanctified. The reason, the subject, or as we more colloquially say, the soul, has been until now the best doctrine on earth. It's perhaps because it, oh, is perhaps because it, oh yeah, sorry. And um, the, the reason, the subject has been the best doctrine on earth is perhaps because it facilitated that sublime self-deception whereby the majority of the dying, the weak and the oppressed of every kind could construe weakness itself as freedom and their particular mode of existence as accomplishment. James, any thoughts, sir? Yeah, I have loads of thoughts. It's difficult to, to lay out thoughts or something like this because it's so broad. That's maybe my biggest it's not a critique because you have to go broad, but it's who specifically is he targeting with this? Because to just group as master and slave, that's very difficult. Example being the modern day Catholic Church. Now, if, if Nietzsche believed that a lot of the Catholics themselves were slaves, what about the Pope? 
So because the Pope is a Catholic, but he's also a top of a hierarchy who's also considered infallible. So whatever comes out of his mouth is correct. So does that put him as master or a slave? Is he repressing his will to power or is he expressing his will to power? Oh, well, he, no, Nietzsche most certainly was saying, as, as he gets into in the third essay, that we have these super hierarchies in place and we have priestly types on top of them. And what these priestly people are doing are they are, they are weak physiologically. They have, a bad, they have a bad concept of life. And so what they're doing is they're poisoning the millions of people that they have inside their hierarchy. So his, I guess his view of the Catholic Church would be like, it's a fantastic institution. Of course, the people on top are somewhat shad, quote unquote masters, but they're fundamentally the wrong people to have up there because what they're doing is they're poisoning everybody with a slave morality and making this huge vista of people um, as we said, shove their instincts inwards because, you know, you get a farmer who is like huge, very muscly like this dude. He could be chad, he could be juicy, he could be, you know, huge, huge muscles and everything and have really good instincts. And he would have no, you could say, political power in some sense. And then you'd get a pope who has massive amount of political power, but is very, very weak and 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 crooked and um, has very, very poor life instincts and whatnot. And the, this pope will will in some sense shove this man inwards and tell him that oh all your desire for strength and all this all this all this um all this healthiness is satan in some sense and that um starts to corrupt the farmer and if you scale that if you get the pope doing that to you know a billion farmers around europe a billion warriors around europe or something like that or around the world you you generally you have a significant damaging effect on the human race and this is where he's sort of suggesting that and I said this in the last election, one of the most dangerous forces in the world is the re resentment of the weak, and it must be dealt with properly. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, it makes sense. But then at the same time, I don't see uh, Christians being opposed to stuff like bodybuilding, for example, which I guess is why at the very, very beginning, I, I want you to clarify what you meant by instinct. So in a will to power sense, there are lots of Christians. In fact, the majority of Christians, maybe it was different in the early church. Maybe that's what he's targeting, and I'm fine with that. But the modern day Christians today, they're not weak people in, in fact they're some of the strongest people you can meet a lot of them are the ones who got trump elected for example so we're very much in favor of that master type figure so it's like what instincts are these in fact, two things i've got here what instincts are these christians uh, uh, pushing down except their desire to dominate other people because that's also a funny funny one as you mentioned with the pope and perhaps they're not repressing it perhaps they're integrating it which is a different phenomenon Yes. So what are what are the what are the Christians doing wrong? You're asking. Yeah, so so you're saying that they're they're weak. We're using weak colloquially, of course. So they're all weak going around and other people who are non-Christians who are more uh, you know that it's more imagistic than describing it in words. But they're being masters and they're being juicy and they're living by their instincts and the Christians are like re repressing their instincts. What instincts are they re repressing specifically? Well, pretty much all of them. Is that not what the Christian doctrine is about? Is that like what is the so 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 what pride, would they be? pride, lust, envy, and um, all like the gluttony? Pretty much anything that constitutes a desire is incorrect. Well, let's let's take gluttony for example. So this is where maybe my reading of Nietzsche is shallow, or maybe I can say that he's strawmanning to say that some X equals instinct. Therefore, you should go with instinct and you shouldn't repress instinct. That's not the case, because if you take something like gluttony, you shouldn't engage in gluttony. And I can I can posit that from a Christian morality standpoint, or I can posit that from a evolutionary pragmatic standpoint. Now, we know that human beings, for example, 
tend to not be gluttonous by nature. We tend to be able to store food up for the winter and long periods of time and keep it around us rather than indulging and indulging and indulging like a wolf. So to say, don't be like a wolf and don't be and don't be uh, give in to your instincts. You know, this is what Dante's Inferno is all about, as far as I can tell, which is these are all of the you can call them instincts or pathologized. Um, you indulge in your instincts and this is what it looks like. So if you give in to your sexual lust, you're thrown around by all eternity by a gale. And it's like, well, yeah, that sounds about right to me. So this is where it's instinct on, instinct off. And on equals good and off equals bad unless you are toning it for a responsibility, which is well, what, the good what way is, of doing things, right? What, what is interesting about the Christian doctrine is it does imply instinct off as good, whereas what I've noticed about Nietzsche is he implies instinct on as good, but he doesn't say let them all out freely. He does actually, he has, I, I, I'll try quote it properly, but this is, could be a paraphrase. He says, the the over the overman or the great man or the superman is that man who can take the chaos of his dispersed his uncontrolled his wild instincts and unify them towards one direction and one goal and that is fundamentally is what he's getting at is that these instincts are the source of your power i guess what he's trying to say is that you don't really have this singular soul inside of you you have these various desires and what you need to do is tame them all in one direction and channel them but what he worries about christianity is that it it, it castrates them in some sense and I, I think i think there's evidence for that if you think about what the christian doctrine actually means like it, there's there is like i know what you're saying you're saying there's plenty of strong christians and you could also argue it's like are they necessarily christian because there's plenty of people oh, who say yeah, they're christian. 100 percent. that's where this becomes a nuanced thing but also i guess my main point here would be uh, is it is repressing of the instinct a binary thing or can you actually say don't indulge in your instincts because it's bad from an evolutionary perspective and also you could take things like pride and you had pagan stoics like marcus aurelius who really didn't like the christians very much and he was he almost acted like a christian in that sense of living according to nature which was that doctrine so it's also not specific in to Christianity either. It's cross-cultural. Therefore, well, meaning never, perhaps there's a deeper psychological reason for this going on uh, rather than necessarily resent him on. Because I think Nietzsche's point here is a lot of this repression comes is rooted initially, though there are steps in between, in that resentment in the first place. But perhaps it's rooted in something else, such as don't indulge sexually because it's bad for you, evolutionary. Don't be a glutton, bad for you, evolutionary. And don't be prideful because there are other reasons for it. Um, well, he never... like. I think I tried to clear it up earlier is that he's not saying that this is unique to Christianity. Like there's plenty of examples of this going on. And he's, again, it's the nuance thing. He's not saying don't have desire. Don't, don't, don't. He's, he's not saying Chris, um, he's, he's not saying people like Aurelius couldn't be vulnerable to stuff like this. And he's also not saying that people like Aurelius trying to, to, to tame their instincts are not doing something that is useful as well. As he said, it, you, you, it is your goal to, to channel your your instinct and put it towards an effective direction because i guess like to, to steal man what you're saying you're suggesting that if someone just indulges in their instincts what they'll end up doing is uh you know running around watching porn or, or maybe they'll they'll even take it to a higher form and run around just nutting and everyone but yes. then like that that is just so retarded and ineffective because it might have worked if you had chariots and you rode into spain and the local male population couldn't fight back and there was no like you know mainstream media to 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 to, to take videos of what you're doing 
Um, and maybe you could go in there and you could actually take over in that sense. But being realistic, nowadays you can't do that. So what you got to do is say, okay, I have this desire which demands that I do what those Yamana did thousands of years ago, but now I need to tame this to the modern world and say, okay, what do I do with this desire? And in some sense, Nietzsche talks about stuff like chastity in an interesting way. He's like, chastity is generally a good thing for a for the right person because you can take that desire for libido that will to power which wants to express itself in the flesh and Nietzsche says you could sublimate that and, and turn it into a, an artistic thing and Freud talks about this quite a lot and that can become a, a profound tool of um of mastery of the instinct like Alexander the Great's a great example of that he was chaste until he took over the world and then he released his then he, he uh he released his seed in one year where he said I'll have a woman every night and he went 365 <laughs> days in that sense and um and that's that's an example of of yes like uh, being absolute about this being like oh you must not let your instincts out at all versus you must let your instincts out completely Nietzsche is like very firmly landing in the middle leaning on the side of indulge you know be, be a bit more decadent but definitely definitely tame them because you'll be ineffective if you're not he, i guess he's, he's trying to say you should trust your instincts more than you should trust priests Sure, sure. Okay. I mean, so I can see a potential area we can agree here. You can act like a Christian, as as in, so for example, Aurelius, who, you know, Roman emperor, you can't really get much more masterful than, than Roman empire. So we can say he's, he's master archetype par excellence, perhaps. He might act, he might share similarities with a Christian, but it's the mindset with which he's getting there, which is the important thing, which Nietzsche has contention with. So he thinks of the Christian mindset to get to that point of, of, of controlling your instincts is the issue, right? We'll we'll get to all this, yeah. Um, yeah, right. we'll get we'll get to all this. And let's go to the next one there. Yes, and so this is the animal question. Yeah, I'll get I'll get to what you just said there later when we're talking about the Christian conception at the end of the world. Sweet. Right. Okay. So here's here's a little interesting thing that I brought up with the lambs. If we actually believe that being conscious was a marker of divinity, we treat animals the same way, but we don't. So if we thought that having a soul was important, and this is this is an important call out because it shows cognitive dissonance. We believed that we had souls and we were valuable because we had souls. And as the, the quote unquote, the weak say, we um, we were divine despite not acting in the world, despite not having that power. Like the little bird that eats the worm says, I am I I'm valuable because I exist. My existence is valuable. There's a God watching over me and this bird of prey is evil. We would treat animals, we would treat our food in the same way, but we do not. Now, this is extremely suspicious. And we did, me and James actually did a video on this. And this, this, I think is, I think this is essentially damning. I, I can't see anybody wrestling away out of this without appealing to, to rationalization. So what you're watching for here is you're watching for people rationalizing the human beings as we said before evolution wants you to win it doesn't want you to find the truth and so what humans tend to do is that they will rationalize and use cognitive dissonance to their advantage they will lather cognitive dissonance around their reality to allow them to move forward they don't need to know the truth in some sense so when you call them out on something like this believing that they have a soul is so useful <laughs> <laughs> such a crazy sentence believing that they have a soul is so useful that they will rationalize amazing things in order to justify them not losing that belief and so it is extremely suspicious it's a double standard and it indicates it would it indicates a useful lie what a slave would have to tell himself to keep him motivated in a fight 
I am divine because I have consciousness. All consciousness is divine. You hear this all the time nowadays. You hear people saying, you know, we've like God died, as Nietzsche pointed out, but we've replaced that with this. As Nietzsche said, we will take Christian morality with us. We will take this herd morality with us and we'll say stuff like all consciousness is divine. We are all special. Everybody is is special and we should empathize with everybody and the vegans are, are in some sense the most honest people like i actually try to credit them with this and i, I like um i like listening to vegans talk because to a large extent they're actually being sincere about what we could call these premises like i see them argue with um, meat eaters and i notice that the meat eaters are just simply lying the meat eaters think they're they're right but th what they do is they simply they, they start saying stuff like the animals isn't conscious and all that. So so this is where the, the, the thing goes. It's like, but what about animals? Are they conscious? Because they are conscious. They're obviously conscious. Chimps can recognize themselves in the mirror. Apparently, they have a higher form of consciousness than a two-year-old, you know? And, um, and like elephants conduct uh, funeral rituals. And so p pigs can apparently count. Like, where, where are you going to draw this fucking line? Like, what, what, what's going on here? They clearly are conscious. It's, they've clearly got something that we have. And so is it right to kill them? And then people are like, whoa, whoa like, of course it is. Like, we need to eat them. No, and then you notice how people rationalize them. They'll start off and say something like, well, God said they are not divine. You know, this, this God that's protecting me from the masters who are evil. You know, I'm stuck here in the middle between these masters and these worms. So God has favored me. You know, if God doesn't like the worms and he doesn't like the bird of prey, but he likes me because I'm special, because I have consciousness and the, the masters are, are have corrupted their consciousness and the worms just simply don't have it. So so that's where I sit, you know, because all it's bang. It all works for me. It's like, you know, it's good. It's really it's really convenient how this all fell into place when you think about it. And then if people don't believe in God, they'll say, well, science says they are not divine. Science says they're not conscious. Science says they're not moral. And you can even flip this on um you, you, I'm sure you could probably you could probably start poking holes in the the abortion debate on both sides with this. You could start going fucking crazy with that shit. Um, because I'm sure there's a lot of people lying about that. But let's not get into that now. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's I was probably... gonna say you got you gotta be careful there because I've got lots of things to throw at you, which will turn this into a very, very controversial stream. So be careful, boy. And um, this, this is uh, this, this, so this could be a very, 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 very interesting area of inspection for cognitive dissonance because there's a vast amount of it, a vast amount of it, and you can see it here. Like this, this is an example of people appealing to very, very profound, big things. Science, science draws these arbitrary lines. God draws these arbitrary lines, and people won't just accept that that what Nietzsche might be saying is true. That maybe. Our consciousness is not as special as we make it out to be. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe there's more to, maybe there's a, a different way we got to look at consciousness. Because what people will do is instead of observing the reality and removing their biases and perhaps changing their premises, such as all consciousness is the source of divinity or whatever, they will, they will create rationalizations. So anything to avoid the idea oh, that gives them an identity, the divinity of soul. If you have actions... You could you could identify with that and you could save yourself this embarrassment. I am a warrior. I'm a creator. I'm a musician, but you are weak. So you don't, you're not able to achieve things. So you need to start creating something. Um, and as I say here, I repeat myself here. The, the above assertions is that we were created by God and did not evolve from animals. This is possible, but maybe a comfortable delusion. 
You could also imagine that there is a magic force called psyche or God that is steering us through history. I think this is I think this is actually an argument I was having with James. But again, this requires a leap of faith to an extent. The frightening thing about Nietzsche is that everything he concludes is observable and deduced from clear and confirmed reality. It's really down to you to decide what it means. There is plenty we don't know about the world. Nietzsche, using his model, predicted so much that you have to give it serious credence. That's hard because it is bleak. So again, the bleakness of what Nietzsche is saying is what stops us. We, we, are, we are unwilling to let go of the premises. And that's what he's attacking. And this is why he's so controversial. And this is why he's so nuanced as well, because people want to make things black and white. They want to be, they'll say stuff like, well, then if all consciousness isn't divine, can we just kill people and all that? And it's like, no, Nietzsche's not saying that. He's sort of saying, are we supposed to premise our entire worldview on consciousness? And then Nietzsche goes on to discuss, maybe we should premise it on something else like health or beauty or something like that. Any thoughts, sir? I'm sure you have one or two thoughts, you know, you might have one or two thoughts about this. Yeah, I have, I have about 55, but, um, do, do Norths have consciousness, James? No, that's, no, Norths don't have consciousness. See, this is why I agree with Nietzsche because I can observe that Northerners don't have consciousness. If you go into Greg's, it's just autopilot mode. It's just sandwich carling Greg's, but it does. It, I, I wonder. I wonder how he would square himself. This is a critique that's often thrown at Nietzsche. I've not looked in, into it in too much detail, so I won't remain on it. That he doesn't understand evolution very much. I'm just going to put that out there. Apparently, that's a thing. But it does make you wonder about group dynamics. So, for, so he likes to think of the idea of uh, we sort, sort of invented or our unconscious, which by the way is evidence of a psyche. Just saying, but that we invented somewhat <laughs> because of certain reasons. This idea of a soul. And it was born out of some kind of resentment or to protect yourself against the master. But what about an evolutionary group survival strategy where believing in a soul is actually beneficial for the entire group? Because if you suddenly say that the individual is not sovereign, you you open up the door to the possibility of certain things being OK. Now, I'm not saying Nietzsche wanted to go and eat people, but it does open the question. Why can't I go and eat people? Now, he had a passage in Zarathustra, of course, on the pale criminal, I believe, where he talked about how he didn't like punishment very much, how like the certain people had instincts and what society used to do was punish them for their instincts. So we shouldn't really have punishment in society, probably. And a lot of the time, random people get pu uh, punished for no good reason either. So it does it does open up that question, why can't you go and eat people? Or, or why can't we kill the weak off? Of course, abortion would be okay. I mean, that, I can't see a reason why you couldn't have abortion in those circumstances. And what about doing force to other people or to other people's property and other people's children? If they haven't got a divine providence within the world, then what would be the counter argument against that? Now, that might be 50 other streams on top, but that's clearly a, a problem I see. I do believe this. I answered this at the end. We'll get into that. No. I, I hope so. I hope you do. And, and I really hope the answer is Nietzsche was in favor of eating people. Because that would be very funny. I'd enjoy that. <laughs> that's literally the next slide. And that's also the last slide. So I'm <laughs> glad you asked that. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts, though, on this? Because we've discussed this before. Like, we won't go down into that too much because it is a fucking rabbit hole. But but there is that. that Like, do you, do you see what I'm pointing at here where there's a serious, serious, suspicious, arbitrary line drawn about the animal thing? And I've always found that super interesting. I'm not a vegan myself. And as I tried to say, I actually try to give them credit. They are just following their premises to their logical conclusion. They're being rational about it. I, I don't think, but I think if you attack the premises, that changes everything. And that's what Nietzsche is doing. So vegans are sort of saying, obviously, empathy with consciousness is good. Why the fuck do we need animals? That's a horrible thing to do if, if we believe this. And then everybody who gets involved in these debates are like um, trying to trying to dance around, trying to figure out a way of saying consciousness isn't 
real or something, or sorry, trying to figure out a way to say of animals don't have consciousness instead of what Nietzsche seems to be doing here being like, why do you think consciousness is divine? And that becomes a creepy, creepy angle. Yes. Well, yeah, the animal one's an interesting one. There are ways around it. And I can actually twist that argument ag against you, if you like. So, for example, you say that um, there's a leap of faith to say that we have a psyche, but also in the same foot you or Nietzsche is also saying that animals are probably just as conscious as human beings. You can't do that technically because we don't know if we have psyche or something like that so you can't draw parallels between what we look like compared to animals if we're not sure if psyche exists in the first place but we let that slide because you can say apparently they, they appear like they have psyche um i mean the same for Jungian psychoanalysis does address that simply in not consciousness is the um is the uh, factor at play here is having an ego consciousness because clearly organisms have psyche whatever that happens to be they go and they act in the world you know they have um the seven life processes which is really weird how would you how would you define life you know it's like is a virus alive probably not but a bacteria is so bacteria versus a human being do they both have psyche well they both act okay so then you do have to draw somewhat of an arbitrary line between humans and animals because i imagine you wouldn't if you had to choose to kill one a human being or i can't think of a very small animal like a deformed baby deer something like that or even a bacteria a yeast a woodlouse whatever you can't you can't draw that arbitrary line but Jungian psychology states that human beings are unique because they have an actual ego consciousness which means that they have a legitimate free will in the world now if you believe in free will and humans have free will dogs don't have free will they act on pure instinct so you can mm -hmm. actually break that break that down and go now you can draw that to probably dolphins and apes something like that but then you can't draw that to all animals because they don't have the same level of consciousness. But ego, does does it break down? Does it does it break down with dolphins and 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 apes? I don't know. I don't know. I I personally would say no. It doesn't break down with those things. I, well, I, would, I would say human beings are or at least appear to be. All the evidence suggests that we are unique in that regard. Um, we are unique in what that we can make free will choices. Free will. Free will. And what? So I guess this is what Nietzsche is trying to say: is like, what makes you think that your choices are your free will? We, that, that's a that's a whole massive free will debate that I can't paraphrase this, in the course of this stream. This is what he's this is what he's fundamentally suggesting is that um, you think you you have a free will to choose to do the right or wrong thing. That's fundamentally all free will is. I have the free will to do a good uh, the right thing or the wrong thing. And Nietzsche is saying that everything you do is dictated by the Vils du Max. The, the you call maybe you could call that what he's saying suggesting a psyche that that um, energy within. And that energy sets you out to grow. And all you're able to do is attack that energy or go with it. That's fundamentally what he's saying. Attack that energy or learn to surf with it. I guess, yeah, attack that energy, go with it, or then learn to surf with it as well in that type of sense. And then um, there is no real free will in the way that we think of it where it's like oh i'm going to make a rational moral choice he's, he's sort of attacking that idea which is a very very interesting way of framing it because free will then becomes about uh, this sort of derivative between listening to um the the instinct within but then animals we were like well animals don't do that animals don't have free will they don't have this choice whether to, to, to obey this instinct within but the question sort of is is like why would they need to? They're perfectly adapted to their environment. Maybe we just developed this ability to to um, to be a bit more introspective, and that's that's um. That's yeah. So, just... so what would that introspective function be? It would be separate from. It would be a thinking function, separate from an actual action function. So, if I go up to my dog, and I and I love my dog to death, and this really upset me when I first learned this when I was like eleven years old, and I was really angry at the teacher for telling me this. But if I flick him on the nose. 
he's going to snap at me. And he's not going to think to himself, ha, huh, master, he snicked me on the, on the nose. I shouldn't bite him because I should bite. No, he'll bite me on the fecking. He'll attack me, right? Whereas human beings can think to themselves, no. And we and when we do snap back at other people, we think and go, huh, was that me snapping back at the other person? That was, again, the insight of um, inside the shadow from Jungian psychology. So you do have the instinct which comes out. But at the same time, we have some form of conscious control. Now, even if it's not conscious control, it's an illusion of conscious control by something else unconscious that gives us that illusion. It's still in practice different to how an animal acts. For example, that example of sticking my finger up my dog's bum, for example. <laughs> That's quite the example. <laughs> well, try it. Try it, dude. Find even a cute puppy and stick your fist. No, we're not going that, that, down that but, route. But, Holy but, then, shit. But, then do, but then do it. I'm not saying do it. This is a thought exercise. Then do it to a human being. They will have a choice whether or not they will snap back at you. Do you see what I mean? But so does the animal. Like the animal, like if you if you punch an animal and you're stronger than him, the animal will, they will pause in fear. And likewise, when you punch a human, if you go up and punch a north, the north will think for a second <laughs> don't do that seriously don't do that the north the north will, the north will think think for a second it's like should i react back now that's a moral question should i react back and we'll get into this I, this we need to reframe morality this is the problem with this the free will thing is we are framing morality as the right thing or the wrong thing as in good or evil but what what the dilemma that you face when you punch the north and the north or maybe the North punches you and the dilemma you face is like, if I fight back, will I win? That's actually fundamentally what you're thinking. You're not thinking, is it right to fight back or not? You're thinking to yourself, if I fight back, will I win? And yes. then if you're afraid that you will not win, you will not fight back. And that's the only moral choice you make. The animals make the same choice. If you punch a chimp, the chimp will look at you and think, can he kill me? And if you can, he'll run away. And you see that happen all the time in the animal world. And that's the same morality. That's the same choice. That's the same free will operating there. You know, it's, it's more based on very basic things. And then we've somehow abstracted this and being like, okay, so the North punches me. And then what you do is you say, can I win? And what you'll notice is that you can't win. So you'll say, okay, I'm afraid. And you'll walk away. No, you won't say you're afraid. You'll feel afraid. But then what you do is you'll walk away and you'll you'll rationalize because you can't tell yourself that you were too weak because that would damage your confidence, make you less likely to be able to survive. You need your self-esteem. So what you do is you walk away, you'll rationalize and be like, I'm better than the North. I'm the bigger man, the bigger man walking away. And there's some truth to that. Maybe it's, it is smarter to hold back in those situations and play the long game. But you can see how that is fundamentally quite a master versus slave dynamic going on there. And I think that's what Nietzsche is pointing out, especially in regards to free will. But let's not go down that rabbit hole too much. Okay. Jesus, crazy stuff, boys. So this, um, this ventures into Socrates a little bit. So this is from Twilight of the Idols. And we start talking about the, the dynamic between dynamic between consciousness and the di dynamic between the unconscious. So, Jimothy, could you give us a read of this, please? Yes, I can do. The problem of Socrates. <clears throat> uh, when one finds it necessary to turn reason into a tyrant, as Socrates did. I'm being funny, everybody, because that was from Bill and Ted. The danger cannot be slight that something else threatens to play the tyrant. Rationality was hit upon as a saviour. Neither Socrates nor his patients had any choice about being rational. It was necessary. It was the last resort. The fanaticism with which all Greek reflection throws itself upon rationality betrays a desperate situation. There was danger. There was but one choice, either to perish or to be absurdly rational. The moralism of the Greek philosophers from Plato on is pathologically 
conditioned. I'm not sure that makes any sense. So is there reverence for logical argument? Reason equals virtue and happiness. That means merely that one must imitate Socrates and counter the dark appetite with a permanent daylight, the daylight of reason. One must be clever, clear, bright at any price. Any concession to the instincts, to the unconscious, leads clever, to Clever, clear, bright at any price. Any con concession to the instincts, to the unconscious. Just downwards yep hello you there you disappeared well, give no us i'm not breaking up you're the one breaking yeah up. don't you don't you put this on me ah stuff stuff oh good no we're still here sweet um, carry on Quit, if, here, i guess if nothing had happened carry on <laughs> um okay i'm bouncing back well guys that nothing happened there you just had this you had this uh flittering in and out of consciousness i think your soul was trying to take over tell you to stop listening to us um, one must be clever, clear, bright at any price. Any concession to the instincts, to the unconscious, leads downwards. I've explained how Socrates fascinated his audience. He seemed to be a physician, a savior. Is it necessary to go on to demonstrate the error in his faith in rationality at any price? It is a self-deception on the part of philosophers and moralists if they believe that they are ex extricating themselves from decadence by waging war against it. Extrition lies beyond their strength. What they chose as a means, as salvation, is itself but another expression of decadence. They change the form of decadence, but they do not get rid of decadence itself. Socrates was misunderstanding. Any improvement in morality, including Christianity, is a misunderstanding. The most blinding daylight, rationality at any price, life, bright, cold, cautious, conscious, without instinct, in opposition to the instinct. All this was a kind of disease, merely a disease, and by no means a return to virtue, to health, to happiness. I have to fight the instincts. That is the definition of decadence. As long as life is ascending, happiness equals instinct. Any thoughts on that, my man? Uh, you're going to have to give me a minute to read it through again, because that's quite dense. So you okay. give a nice spiel, and then I'll come back oh, and counter you. Okay, and... I guess I'll, I'll just frame it for what I think he's saying here. He's basically saying that as the Greeks began to decay, as they began to become weaker, their will to power began to to funnel out. Because as you become more civilized, things become more comfortable. You, you don't you lose touch with nature. Your will to power, your your inner lightning gets gets weaker, gets bleaker. And what happens is you start to lose order, the order around you, the order creating force, which was the Vilstumaxt. The, the, the expression, the dominating instinct starts to flicker out. And what happens then is the right thing to do would be to figure out a way of, of um, stoking that fire and getting it to come back to life. But what happens instead is that most people start to realize that things are going down. Things are beginning to decay. We're seeing this in the modern world. This is what's going on now. Things are starting to really, really loosen a little bit. And um, things are becoming more decadent, if you will. And people are assuming now what the mistake people do is they assume, okay, clearly all these people with their weaker will to power are falling into hedonism because they don't have the strength anymore to unite their chaos like Alexander the Great and become chaste and fight towards something great, if you will. You know, they instead they they loosen their ability to aim for great goals. They lose their ability to actually get the ultimate form of will to power which is to have the higher goals and they fall into the the indulgence of their instincts the decadence of their instincts without any higher goals it becomes a it becomes a he, he, hedonistic and nihilistic in that type of sense 
and you can see all these patterns going on and so the people notice this stuff and they're like oh fuck this is horrible what are we going to do well we need to start stopping the instincts we need to start plugging these instincts and controlling them so these instincts are going crazy everybody's just being you know sex addicts food addicts gluttony all those christian mor moralities and so what they do is they um they they say oh we know we must decide that reason is good reason is an order creating force they make the mistake of 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 understanding that the unconscious dark passions were actually the source of life and instead they say reason is an order creating and so that will bring us the virtue happiness and that will stabilize everything but what they do by mistake is they actually using reason cull off connection to the instincts and that makes the thing completely fall over so this appearance of reasonable philosophers are the final stage in a falling in a falling empire an empire falling out of its profound will to life ascending life as he calls it and falling back into the the dark world of the instincts and we're this is all happening nowadays so things things peaked and everybody started to become hedonistic nihilistic everything started to spiral downwards people lost the sense of broader goals europe colonized the world and then that was the great kingdom achieved well there's no point in anything new everything began to fall and now you see people rising up in a reactionary sense where they're trying to get back to tradition they're trying to get back to to, to morality they're trying to impose these things they're trying to get back to reason like jordan peterson's a great example of this phenomenon jordan peterson shows up and he's like we must stabilize with order and um, and he starts to present essentially christian morality all over again and he's saying this is the way that we solve all these problems but it's all a mistake because it's not understanding the source of the problem. The source is that we've lost touch with life. But no one wants to say that because we see all around us this decadence. We're like, well, life is evil. These instincts are evil. We can't trust them. We must go towards morality. We must go towards reason, rationality, these type of things. And again, they don't understand that these th these tools that we think are going to save us are actually going to, they're the final nails in the coffin. And they only appear when the coffin is getting hammered in properly. <laughs> so as Nietzsche says, if you want to find happiness, virtue, health, if you want to find redemptive power, look towards instinct, look towards feeding this Vils du Max. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it sounds somewhat absurd, actually. I'm not saying I disagree, but it's kind of absurd that it, it's, it's almost, and this is not what he's saying. This is a projection. I imagine that before Socrates, so way, way back, you know, 500 BC or something, that was a good time because everyone, they had their will to power and they were exploding forth. And it's like, I don't think that was the case. You know, life is a, is a brutally tragic thing. It's, it's also funny that he's using reason and rationality to critique uh, the primacy of reason and rationality. But that's me being facetious. I will say a couple of things, though, on this on this reason and logic thing. I've, I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently. So if you if you say that reason and ideas in the head, not the body, are, are um, uh, should sit on the top of your hierarchy, then that actually sits you into sort of a societal meme machine. So a good example of this, rather than Socrates, although he's probably prime here, is Aristotle. Because Aristotle is everywhere absolutely everywhere like the dude invented logic for crying out like so he, his texts were lost for a long period of time and then like aquinas or one of aquinas's pals whatever dug him up and then aquinas based his theology heavily on aristotle and then dante based his stuff on aquinas and then dante inspired every piece of art subsequently in western civilization so you can say 
all of our culture or a massive chunk of it rests on specific individuals. Christ is a big one in terms of a mean machine, but Aristotle as well. Therefore, Plato, therefore Socrates being his teachers. Whereas if you go with instinct and you go with life, you actually bypass that. So Nietzsche has a critique of that where he essentially it's in the first chapter of Beyond Good and Evil where he says that everyone, all philosophers are merely just painting their own autobiography onto the page. So that's interesting when you consider that they become prime in the memes in our life. But there is an example of this as well. Like when people try and get into self-improvement, and I've done this quite a lot, you end up thinking an awful lot. Like what's the first thing you do? You read lots of articles, you listen to Tim Ferriss and Jocko Willink, and you think and you think and you think and you think and you think. And then five years later, you're still in the same place where you've begun. Whereas everyone else around you, take CEOs, for example, are able to go out and live their lives and conquer. And you think, well, how the hell is that possible? And I think it's because the CEO isn't thinking. It's just natural routines and natural habits that go into autopilot mode, but it's a productive autopilot mode. So it does make you think about whether or not if to get to where you want to go, you should be using reason and logic and that thinking faculty or whether or not you should just surrender down into your into your habits and your routines and let yourself run on the back of whatever the unconscious forces are. So so apart from apart from some absurdity in there, I think I can get on board with a lot of that. Very, uh, very poignant point. Very good point. Very practical point as well. And again, I, like I actually am trying to draw the pragmatic pragmatism out of this. And at the end of the lecture, like I, I do have a conclusion to draw out of this, which I think is very practical. And James put it out very well there is that uh, the winners are usually the ones who take action, not the ones who think like it's so obvious. You've got to reframe thinking as almost like a tool of helping you take action like maybe the best way to use your thinking faculties is to actually act in the world and then think about what you did as opposed to yes. think about what you should do and that's that's a very like what's beautiful about this is that these these ideas are so simple but you're guaranteed you're not going to do them because you're a rationalizing being like all of us and if you really want to change your life why don't you actually just try do them why, why don't you say i'm just going to keep it simple like you can you can think of something called keystone habits i read that off james clear the gym man if you go to the gym four five six days a week for four five six years it'll probably change your life more than any amount of reading books will and that's and you a don't very think while you're in the gym either because if you yes. do you psych yourself out which is very interesting and the point and power of stuff like meditation that's actually training you not to think and to focus and you and this is it like there's there's so much the modern world is such a curse for this because you have the internet and all that and we have all the information but but information is is practically useless without a a a a a force in you that is able to order that stuff and maybe you could call that the soul who knows but uh, it is about um you taking in all that stuff and whipping it into shape and understanding that all right this is useful this is not useful and if you don't have a and, and we're going to get into this this is such a big idea if you don't have a vision that you're aiming for and you're reading all these self-help books you're missing the problem the problem is that you have nothing that you're aiming for that will help you order your instincts so if you have this goal where it's like i want to be a bodybuilder well at the very least you can know that i i all, all the action i need to take is to start working out but if you're in that position where it's like i don't know what to do with my life and you get into self-help you'll spend you know years reading trying to figure out solutions and you'll keep coming up against tactics but no one will ever be able to give you this idea of what should the vision of the goal of my life be and that's what nietzsche starts hitting on hard is that and it's such a brilliant and well observed idea is that it's the goal that we need we lack the goal and um that's something we need to redeem from the chaos if you will yeah it is a good question what's the purpose of thinking because i imagine we all just presume you're meant to think 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 say so, well maybe the purpose of thinking is to plan and to reflect and that's it
and maybe it's more stuff like this because I have to think in order to make myself look like the top boyer with my will to power, of course. But, uh, but so yeah, what's the what's the purpose? So maybe you should plan at the beginning of the day, act, and then reflect at the end, and not let any thoughts come into your mind. And that, I know for a fact that makes me more effective. It's just very very difficult. So yeah. I like we'll, that we'll idea. Get, nice idea. We'll, we'll get to that at the end, and we'll start talking about um, we'll start talking about that. But before we get to that, we must go through how we have pathologized possibly as a culture and maybe as in general how quote-unquote weak people pathologize this instinct these instincts towards action and because i'm like i guess if we want to draw something interesting out of that the whole point that i was trying to get at earlier and that nietzsche is trying to get at is that quote-unquote slave moralities fundamentally turn you against your own ability to act they make you think that being a quote-unquote soul and thinking and praying and like you know being introverted and being held within and not acting are virtues and so they they strangle you from taking action and action is what will change your life and that is a very dangerous place to be in so you need to be very very suspicious of these behaviors and that's very very good advice and i'll, I'll at the end i'll make that more practical nonetheless he's going to go into the idea of um rationalization a little bit more here and this is how he's he's just articulating he does this dramatically it's quite interesting he articulates how um, Christianity specifically puts makes up this idea of submission. Like all Christianity, he's showing how the the worldview of Christianity is clearly a rationalization. In his words, clearly a rationalization of how um, of how the weak were not able to overcome the strong, so they had to make a worldview that allowed them to operate in the world nonetheless. Again, that idea that they needed a delusion that helped them evolve. So it's not he's saying that it's not true. It's the useful. And that is, um, and he starts to articulate it here. James, do you want to read this or shall I go for it? Uh, let's take it in turn. So Roman 13, 1. Uh, um, forget, actually, forget that. Go for the stuff on the right first, and I'll take the bottom half, and then I'll do the, the those yokes. All right, sweet. They are now informing me that not only are they better than the powerful, the masters of the world whose spittle they have to lick. What the fuck, dude? <laughs> not from fear, not at all from fear, but because God orders them to honor those in authority. Not only are they better, but they have a better time, or at least will have a better time one day. But enough, enough. I can't bear it any longer. Bad air, bad air. This workshop where ideals are fabricated, it seems to me just a stink of lies. No, wait a moment. You haven't said anything yet about the masterpieces of those black magicians who can turn anything black into whiteness, milk and innocence. Haven't you noticed their perfect refinement, their boldest, subtlest, most ingenious and mendacious stunt? Pay attention. These cellar rats, stellar rats, no, cellar rats full of revenge and hatred. What do they turn revenge and hatred into? Have you ever heard these words? Would you suspect if they just went by and what they said that the men around you were nothing but men of Rizontimon? I love Nietzsche, dude. It's great fun. I'll understand. I understand. I'll open my ears once more. Oh, oh, and I'll hold my nose. Now at last. He's such a dick. He's such a dick. Now at last I can hear what they've been saying so often. We, good people, we are the just. What they are demanding is not called retribution, but the triumph of justice. What they hate is not their enemy. Oh, no, they hate injustice, godlessness. What they believe and hope for is not the prospect of revenge, the delirium of sweet revenge. Homer early in on dubbed it as sweeter than honey, but the victory of God, the just God over the godless, all that remains for them to love on earth 
are not the brothers in hate, but they're brothers in love. As they say, all good and just people on earth. And what do they call that which serves as a consolation for all the sufferings of the world? Their phantasmagoria of anticipated future bliss. What do I hear correctly? They call it the last judgment, the coming of their kingdom, the kingdom of God. But in the meantime, they live in faith, in love, in hope. Enough, enough. <laughs> and so to illustrate this idea, they, they, they tell me that they're better than the powerful, but they obey them, not from fear, because God orders them. That's the same idea of rationalizing when the North punches you, you don't fight back. But instead you say, I'm the better man. God tells me not to fight back. So here you have from Romans 13.1. Everybody must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which is from God. The authorities that exist have been appointed by God. Consequently, the one who resists authority is opposing what God has set in place. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So we, there you have a quote from the Bible telling you to bow to the masters. These, these are the evil people. So God has put these evil people in place. Wow, that's interesting. And you're supposed to bow to them, but you, you're consolidated with the idea that in the future, trust me, the last judgment will come and God will punish these people. So you don't worry. You just stay there and fa you do exactly what you're going to do anyway. You sit down there and you uh, be weak and you you be unable to act and you submit and you and you cower, but do not worry. It's not because you're it's not because you're weak. It's not because you're unable to act. It's not because you're a coward. It's not because you're afraid. It's because God has appointed you to do that. That is your role. And Wait, God has on, got a on, plan. Hang on, hang on. That sounds like really good advice to me. I don't I don't see any contention with that. It's like, well, what's the alternative? Either you, exactly. either you allow or you know authority to work, or you go and you get yourself killed and you make sure that there's no hierarchies ever set up. That, 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 that sounds like a tool to to stamp out resentment. That that's absolutely what Christianity is. Yeah, Nietzsche was Nietzsche was adamant that like he's he's not saying it's. Uh, I think we said this in the last one. It's like Christianity stops slaves from being resentful. That's fantastic, but that does not mean it's a good worldview for masters. You shouldn't be telling this to masters. You know, maybe someone who has a big vision for the future doesn't need to focus on the kingdom of God. They need to focus on the kingdom. I'm making it happen, but if you're not able to do that, well, maybe you should shut the fuck up, be prudent, and not try destroy all orders. So it's it's he's saying that this is how the belief shapes itself out of the unconscious of the weak, and in many senses, it's it's viable as we discussed. Like Christ may have come as the antidote to resentment, and who knows to credit Christianity from a Nietzschean perspective, perhaps. The resentment of the weak is the most dangerous force in the world, the most dangerous in terms of destroying beauty. And so maybe in some really weird way, Christ was actually a very, very good thing to happen in the world because he, he tamed people from from yeah the insanity of of destroying what is great and, and allowed them sentences like this. Who knows? Who knows? So maybe it, it does yeah, work. So it just sounds like really good advice. It's like he's just praising it there. So, okay, fair enough. And then Luke 23, 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his garments by casting lots. And the people stood watching and the rulers sneered at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is Christ of God, the chosen one. And of course, he was not able to save himself. And so that is considered a very damning representation but that's of, not necessarily the case in christian theology though i will keep butting but, in and, and but we're not we're not talking christian it. we're not talking christian theology nietzsche would be talking about there is no afterlife so christ didn't resurrect there was no there was no afterlife christ was 
like you know what happened in this world is what happened in this world and he he was walking around saying he saved everyone and did it and so that that's fundamentally going from the idea that there is no heaven if you believe in heaven well then you don't have to listen to nietzsche Oh yeah, but it's, it's built into that particular story that he was going to rise from the dead. It's written as a narrative deliberately with that end point in mind. So, but anyway, yeah, carry on. So, so Solomon Gomorrah, right? So this is the North. This is Manchester on a Saturday afternoon. So what, what he's discussing here is this very last idea. And what do they call that which serves as a consolation for all the sufferings of the world? The anticipation of future bliss. What? Do I hear correctly? They call it the last judgment, the coming of their kingdom, the kingdom of God. But in the meantime, they live in faith and love and hope because this world doesn't suit them. And they, they, they need to believe because this is an archetype. We need to believe that there's a kingdom in the future that we're fighting towards. And this is where our morality gets interesting. We need to believe that at some point we're going to reach the future and achieve something. And that kingdom is going to be a paradise for us. But of course, if you are weak, if you are a slave, you don't have that kingdom. The masters are currently the, the birds of prey living in the kingdom. And so what we need to believe is that at some point, we will get it back off the masters. They will be punished. And Nietzsche is trying to frame the idea that the whole Christian theology is a very clear representation of slave resentment being pathologized into this idea of taking revenge on the masters. And he starts to show it from Christian Christian uh, canonical doctrines and whatnot. So they leave the taking of revenge to God. So they believe that in the future, they will be the ones who are oppressing the masters. And a lot of this gets parodied by the idea of, um, of uh, the Colosseum, because a lot of the Christians suffered in the Colosseum, getting punished for being Christians. And it was this really intense situation where they were they were in you know the center of the Colosseum and all these people around watching them for pleasure get tortured and whatnot and uh you see how that actually started to seep its way into the idea of revelations and whatnot so faith in what love for what hope for what these weaklings in fact they too want to be the powerful one day this is beyond doubt one day their kingdom will come too the kingdom of god simpliciter is the name for it as i said there are, they are so humble about everything. Just to experience that, you need to live long, well beyond death. Yes, you need eternal life in order to be able to gain eternal recompense in the kingdom of God for that life on earth in faith, in love, in hope. So again, they're waiting for that kingdom. And the only way that they can get to that kingdom is by being moral. And moral to them is doing exactly what is the only thing that they can do, which is sit around, pray, and not take action. Um, yes, so let's go with this. Uh, yes, and this is a quote from the thing as well. For what is the bliss of this paradise? We might have guessed already, but it is better to be expressly shown it by no less than an authority in such matters as Thomas Aquinas, the great teacher and saint, when he say, Beati in regno colesti, he says as meekly as a lamb, there's Nietzsche being a dick. Vidbunt pones damatorum un beatu ilis magiae complacat. So the blessed in the heavenly kingdom will see the torment of the damned so that they may even more thoroughly enjoy their blessedness. And so there's a, a very, very telling glimpse into the psychology of Christianity. And from Thomas Aquinas's perspective is that the kingdom, the revelations, the end is not about them being good people. It's not about them being, being moral. It's about them getting into that position where they can sit up in the Colosseum 
of heaven and watch all those evil masters get tortured and instead of you know being good christians they're going to enjoy it and that is a uh, one of the major figure in the church so that's that's a very very damning thing now it's not christ's words but nonetheless it's interesting it's also not necessarily what that quote means but you can carry on and um, if you want it even more forcefully, for example, from the mouth of a triumphant church father who advised his Christians against the cruel voluptuousness of the public spectacle. But why not? Faith offers us more, he says, something much stronger thanks to salvation. Quite other joys are at our command. Instead of athletes, we have martyrs. We want blood. Well, then we have the blood of Christ. But think what awaits us on the day of his second coming, of his triumph. So again, a little glint into that desire for vengeance at the end of time, that, that vengeance when it comes back. They're saying, we want blood and it awaits us at the end. We will get it. So I, I want to go on to that Aquinas quote just for a second. So Aquinas was very interested in, so he was a very rational man. He was very interested in, in grouping up faith with reason because how is it, because he loved Aristotle, for example. So how is it that Aristotle could have got stuff right if he didn't have the love of Christ? And so he was he was interested in all of this stuff. There is an idea which is mimicked in Dante's Inferno, where Dante, he's looking at all these, these souls burning in hell. And he turns to Virgil and goes like, oh, is their suffering going to end on Judgment Day? And Virgil goes, no, no. Remember what Aristotle said. Aristotle said that things will tend towards perfection. So what that means is their punishment will get more perfect and their and your bliss will get more perfect at the end times. So Aquinas's quote there, Nietzsche is, is um, he's trying to do a psychological insight there into saying well, he, what he wants to do is essentially sit on the Colosseum and swap the roles, from my understanding. But the way Aristotle derived that, uh, Aquinas derived that was actually from Aristotle himself, as far as I can tell. So it is a it's a it's actually based in reason rather than based in some kind of psychology. That would be my counter yeah. to that point where you can't necessarily read that in. I, I think that's definitely based in psychology because then he stacks up another quote straight afterwards showing that's what the the that's what the revenge the, the revengeance instinct is like look you can say revelations is unbiblical but i think i think it's very clear that it, it is sort of a a vengeance fantasy and i write down here like jung actually agreed with this assertion he was saying that revelations was christ manifesting as the shadow side of the original jewish followers which was their resentment like he he specifically states that i don't think that's a I don't think that's a big bone of contention. Like, I think it's very clear that that desire for, you know, the, the smashing of the, of the, the, the dominant order is um, something to do with vengeance. Now, maybe, I don't know, maybe it is divinely inspired, but they could also be sprinkling, sprinkling in vengeance and it, it stacks up just so perfectly. And it, it does, it does fit that um, entire dream that we are setting up there as well so i think there's something serious to it well it's it's vengeance but not vengeance necessarily against the master because there are loads of slaves as well who would also be burning in this eternal hellfire so in which case it would be ven vengeance in a will to power sense where you would sit on top of the throne and even your fellow slaves would be burning in hell around you maybe that's the case for some things i'd be highly suspicious that revelation specifically as opposed to the rest of the New Testament, is rooted in some form of risontemon, especially because it reads like some kind of strange psychedelic trip. It doesn't read like someone writing something properly. So, and to say that a psychedelic trip would, would is, not is a revelation us... of your of your of your um, resentment would... seems to be more an imprint of the unconscious patterns. Which is where you'd keep your resentment, surely. Like if it's psychedelic, and maybe you could say it's someone wrote it in a trance. That actually gives it more lenience into the idea that they were probably being suspiciously honest in it. They weren't rationalizing as much. They were actually just confessing something deeply that their soul desired, which was 
like you know the jews were about to get their entire civilization destroyed the romans were like monstrous what they did to them they they pulled apart judea and they kicked them all out into um all around the world they tried to destroy their spirit like the whole goal of rome destroying the judea and turning it into palestine is they wanted to break the jews spirit forever they wanted to get rid of them they wanted to be like your temple your religion it's all it's over now you're done you are now you're now a dis disenfranchised people and that 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 was an unbelievable point of tension and so there's every reason for us to assume that through every single Jewish person, there was a deep feeling of fear for that coming and a deep feeling of uh, resentment towards these Romans for for something like that. And so um, I'd imagine if anybody was doing some type of un unconscious spilling forth, you're going to get all these ideas of like of reframing that resentment. And I think, yeah, I, I don't think that's a good point to argue. Like, I think that's a very, very strong case. That That's a very, very solid case. It would make perfect psychological sense. As I was saying, Jung stacks up with it as well. Yeah, Jung stacks up on it in different means as well in terms of you need it as a psychological opposite. It could be resentment in there. I'm not necessarily arguing with that. But even the case of the Romans were oppressing the Jews, I still think that's too much of a black and white narrative to come down on at one point. Augustus specifically sent out a decree, I can't remember when it was, soon after Christ was born, I think, or maybe just before he died, saying that the Jews were not to be fucked with. Essentially, he's like, leave them alone because they, they have a right to, to live here, they have a right to have their temples here, etc. Don't fuck with them as well. So I don't think that's black and white either. But that could be an argument for another day. The time being, we've been going for two hours now, dude. So uh, this, Yeah, uh, it's almost how, over how, anyway. How much longer have we got left? It's almost over. Sweet the kingdom, so we're going to go into the idea of the kingdom, and this is where we start to bring it to its close, its, its idea of the winner mindset and all that. And the kingdom is a potent archetype that fills us with meaning and the reason for us to suffer. So we all dream about a kingdom in the future that we're fighting towards. This is what we're doing. Like our life is, uh, is premised on what are we trying to build? This is our goal. So, uh, you know, you had Europe for the EU. You have the fucking Norths and James over here doing Brexit. They, they want to bring the British Empire back. You had the Brits at some point. John D, the magician, showed up and he said, let's create a British Empire. You had the Spanish and the Portuguese create the Latin American Empire. You had Europe create the colonized empire. The Jews themselves had Judea, Israel. They actually got it back about um about 50 years ago after this this stuff that went down with the romans and it was all about this idea that you know you kick this is what's so interesting about it you kick all those jews out of judea you destroy their temple but you can't you don't take their kingdom from them the archetype of israel is still in their minds and for two thousand years they wander around getting you know causing trouble and getting kicked out of countries and whatnot and, and having having rows and all this and then they eventually get it back because the kingdom remains potent and there in their heads it remains there it remains vibrant and they keep fighting for it despite all their uh, despite all their challenges they keep and this is why nietzsche admired them he like he admired them because holy shit 2000 years they didn't get this courage 2000 years they were willing to do anything in order to stay on track and then they actually got it in the end and he he was like he saw all these things coming into place because the zionist movement was rising up at that point he was like fucking hell they pulled that off jesus that is some that is some prudent display of uh if you wish slave morality or whatever they played the long game most certainly and they pulled it off and so that that is the same with the irish fought against the english for our kingdom and all that these kingdoms they're vibrant present in the world pathologizing that by saying that you're never going to get a kingdom to the afterlife and the only way you're going to get it is by sitting in an action is dangerous because it takes away your ability to have that goal you don't you'd have nothing to work towards in this life you can only work towards the afterlife 
And this is this is frightening because it's even worse when you sprinkle in the resentment with it. You start to fantasize that at this point in the future, you will get redemption for all the pain you've been caused by the quote unquote masters of this world. And so you start obsessing about that. It's like, oh, the kingdom, I, I will achieve that in the future and that will be fine. And all I've got to do now is just be a good person now. And that that becomes frightening in its connotations because it disarms you. It makes you useless it, it stops you from acting and therefore if you do not act you cannot reach a goal so these goals are super important and uh, even if the small scale of building a house that that can provide a goal for you you're going to build a kingdom for your family and whatnot and to the broad scale of dying in war for your people again that's that's building a kingdom and so when you are dispossessed and you cannot manifest your will you build a kingdom you suffer immensely like the jews who lost israel and so the archetype of hoping for a greater future abstracted into and hoping for an orgy of redemptive violence at the end of time is something that is very suspicious and damning because that steals the archetype in our minds from what we could use as the archetype of, of build a kingdom in this world and actually get a result. So let's talk more in terms of vision. Do you have a vision for your life? And if you give your vision up to this idea of someday, that's that's literally what it boils down to. You, you meet this all the time with people. Someday I'll start working on my dream. Someday I'll start. You know, you meet someone in the office and you're like, hey, what, what's up? So what do you want to be? And they're like, oh, I'd love to be a writer. And it's like, well, have you written anything? And they're like, well, like someday I'll start. I just got to get my finances in order, you know? And they, they're always putting it off. And if you put it off long enough, it turns into the afterlife. That's essentially what Nietzsche is talking about. And he's saying, you can't do that. You've got to be careful not to do that. And this is, if you allow this to happen you 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 trick yourself into inaction you sour the archetype that is there to help you these archetypes are there to help you they're help they're there to help you serve life and achieve great things and these great things will heal you from suffering more than anything and uh i'm just um smelling a perhaps a straw man there take uh take handle for example listening to handle quite a lot recently so he he wrote the messiah which is this beautiful long chorus type opera thing which was a jubilation of Christ and a jubilation of God. He took action to go and do that. And in fact, it was directly inspired, you can say, though you can have psychological insights if you like to, that he did that. He created something that will be remembered for all time. So I don't know where this idea of inaction comes from. What do you mean by specifically inaction? To sort of just sit there and pray all day? Because that's not what Christ said either. Christ, in, in, fact, in fact, Christ went out of his way to say in the Gospel of Luke, he said, uh, sell your cloaks and get swords, boys. So, huh, that's, that's kind of, weird that's interesting and in the sermon on the mount he, he explicitly says act day to day to day to day to day but focus on the highest possible vision that you have for yourself I'm not i don't know where this idea of inaction is coming from perhaps you can enlighten me in christian what do, what, what do monks do so is, is is this is where we have to fractionate this down is he saying monks and priests or is he saying christians as such the people who take this ideology serious tend to not act it's pretty much all he's saying so in that case, are monks the only Christians who are taking Christianity seriously? Well, the monks are evidence of that. The The Catholic Church is evidence of that. You could say that pretty much all of the Christian movement afterwards was evidence of that. This is how they behaved. So, yeah, but implicit in that is that, so for example, the family or the neighborhood that I grew up with, which called themselves Christian and went to mass every week, but still lived normal lives. They just tried to avoid indulging in, in sin, which is actually very good life advice. They're not real Christians in that sense. Would that be yeah. the main distinction that, that, that you're not a real Christian unless you're a monk? 
uh, p- perhaps like well how are you supposed to take that uh that gospel serious like what well, what happens when you actually do what christ says he does say the last christian died on the cross and so maybe christ was a great man but the ideology that was built out of and specifically the corruption saint paul uh, did to it as nietzsche was often angry about and um, turns into this as we're saying, a slave morality that that pacifies people. Like, and it's very, very clear that there's there's a huge amount of resentment packed into that. And he has more quotes from Paul and whatnot. He does that in the Antichrist. Actually, he thought, "Oh fuck, I should have got that for this lecture. That would have been fascinating." Yeah, he shows how Paul is is seeding it with resentment against the masters, saying that one day we will conquer them and we're better than them and all these the, the type of things. And it's look like this is the intellectual foundation of something that Europeans then took and ran with and turned into their own thing. And Nietzsche's just arguing, look, dudes, like it's not, it's not the religion. It's not the religion. This, this worldview that you have that came from these group of people, like that's, that's not what makes you great. That's not what's helping you. Like, you know, people like Handel did that in spite of these things. The Renaissance was, was a religious themed, a Christian themed ideal that happened in spite of being Christian. Like early Christians in Constantinople, for example, almost had this huge disagreement where they said they were never going to, they weren't going to um, idolize, I think, Christ by painting pictures of him. They almost culled out art, did like Islam does that sometimes, where you're not allowed to have any visual representations of uh, religious themes. You're only allowed write and you're not allowed, and uh, music can only be um, in that type of sense. And so he's just saying that like all of this stuff is, it, it's not. Christianity, look, it may be great, but it's not its not fundamental. He's saying the fundamental things are a lot different. And if you start looking for the fundamentals, they turn out to be a lot more to do with you and the energy that you bring. And uh, and yeah, the people in the, and of themselves and the life instincts within them and learning how to master those. And so I think that's what he's talking about, disarming all of this stuff and throwing it away. And, and like, you know, whatever your interpretation of Christianity was, some people get it better, some people get it worse. Like, who knows? But nonetheless, it's still not the essential place you should be looking. I think that's the frame he's trying to put up. Cool. Okay. Uh, I'm only trying to uh, poke holes in this purely for a case of getting specific. So it's like, if, if he's complaining against monks and priests as a way of life, completely get that if he's complaining about individuals having christ as a cornerstone in their life when he's stacking all of this stuff on top on of it all these accusations we'll say of resentment and, and stuff like that i don't think that's based i just don't think there's any evidence for that so it becomes a non-functional critique this is the genealogy of morals in terms of priests sure average christian i can't I, it just appears like a straw man to me that's why i insist on stuff like specifics you can actually dissect it well okay without without going too deep into this and without appealing to it's just symbolism do you know any christians who have looked at a woman and then plucked their eyes out afterwards <laughs> personally no i have not met people who have plucked their own eyes out well then that's evidence of a very a behavior that is about killing off your instincts if your eye makes you sin pluck it out and maybe it's a metaphor, but I'm, I'm going to avoid. I'm going to try dude, to keep this. Dude, in. that's clearly a metaphor. Jesus said specifically, I speak in parables so that people understand. Well, then, like, you know, you're in a serious problem there because how much was he speaking in parables? Was the kingdom of heaven at the end of time a parable? And so well, was well, everybody. Well, was the, is the kingdom of heaven actually a mustard seed? It'd be hilarious if it was. That'd be brilliant well, if we uncover that that's really what he was talking about—an actual seed—and he was insane. Was the, no, the it's, meek? It's, it's a metaphor. Was the meek? Was the meek inheriting the earth a parable? Meek uh, depends. That's where we have to get fluffy. Do you mean the original translation of meek or our current translation of meek? No, no. What I'm saying is it a parable? Is he saying that the, the meek actually won't inherit the earth? No, it's you're saying the meek, meek shall inherit the earth. 
But what does he so mean will, by, 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 in, by inherit the earth? So, yeah, it, so mean, it means they, they will be the ones in charge of the earth. So is that what he's saying, or is it a parable? Well, do you think that's true? Is that a true statement? That, well, that, that, that was the same. Individuals in terms of they have swords that keep them sheathed, are they more likely than any other classification of individuals on that scale of meekness to inherit the earth and have eternal life stably across time? I'm asking, is it a parable or not? Is he talking to metaphors or is he saying this is this is how the thing is going to work? This is how the world is going to work? It, it's right? it's well, inherit the earth is flowery language, but not I wouldn't say that's a parable. No, the parables he explicitly they explicitly mark in the Gospels as this was Jesus's parable of the sower and the parable of the whatever, etc. OK, so was the poke your eye out thing a specifically marked parable? Wait, the, the cut your own eye out if you go and yeah. sin. Yeah, was it? Did he say this is a parable I'm about to tell you? Yo. So it's not said before every single parable. But, but, <laughs> no, 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 no. Listen, listen, dude, dude, dude. At the beginning of the section of that book, it says this is the story of Jesus's parables. Okay, let's 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 bounce on. I'll, I'll let us. James destroyed me there. We'll say that, and let's keep going. Um, which of them has prevailed for the time being? Rome or Judea? There is no child of doubt. Like, consider you bow down in Rome itself. You bow down in Rome to uh, Judea, he's saying. And then he's talking about the Renaissance and the return of that. However, in the Renaissance, there was a brilliant, uncanny reawakening of the classical ideal of the noble method of valuing everything. Rome itself woke up as though from suspended animation under the pressure of the new Judaic Rome built over it, which looked like an economical synagogue and was called the church. But Judea triumphed again at once, thanks to that basically proletarian German and English resentment movement, which people called the Reformation, including its inevitable consequence, the restoration of the church, as well as the restoration of the ancient tomb-like silence of classical Rome, in an even more decisive and profound sense than then. Than then. Judea once again triumphed over the classical ideal with the French Revolution, the last political nobility in Europe, that of the French 17th and 18th century collapsed under the resentment instincts of the rabble. The world had never heard greater rejoicing and more uproarious enthusiasm. And so he's discussing how throughout history, this dynamic of the resentful and the strong, they were fighting between each other, the, the masters and slaves, if you will. And it's showing how Rome grew up, then Christianity slipped in, took Rome down, then renaissance grew up and classical rome woke up from a trance but bang then protestantism and the reaction in the church came in and then um you have yeah with the reformation and all that and then you have uh the french revolution rises up this is democracy liberalism nationalism now so I, again people will be like oh yeah liberalism oh yeah get the left the norse would be like yeah fuck get the lefts mate i'm not racist for fucking fuck those left-wingers and then what Nietzsche is trying to say here is like the, 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 the nationalism came part of that. The, the whole romance movement of everybody's valuable. That was the point when we castrated us from Christianity. And this is actually a credit to Christianity is that at least at that point, the Catholic Church was a stable European hierarchy we, we, uh, that supported the kings. And then we jumped out of that. And we went into pure democracy, pure liberalism, pure just obsessiveness about the the divinity of the individual stripped away from its christian over over overarching slave morality if you will or whatever the fuck you want to call it and we went just pure abstract notions of these things this is where we start to assume things like divine compassion for each person everybody has a soul of course animals don't this is when we started getting into the science and all this this is when we got into the modern world this is where it's all happened this is where left and right actually was came from 
and this has set us up for the where we are right now and this began the slow and interesting process towards the the the, the drama that we're having now where it's very hard to understand what the fuck's going on. Everything seems like a mess and everybody is stuck in what you could call identity politics. And it seems like we're electing people, but they don't really, you know, serve us at all. It's almost as if there's there's moneyed elites behind the electorate that's actually controlling things. Maybe there's some shadow masters, who knows? And there's nothing we can do about that stuff because we all still believe that we, we're not able to think past the French Revolution because we can't challenge our premises and all that. And again, he's making that dance saying this is how it all went down. Um, yes. And this is the, okay, so here's the conclusions. Here's the conclusions. Here's the conclusions. So here we fucking go, man. Like, by the way, the pictures, man. Have you enjoyed the pictures? I've very much enjoyed the pictures. Uh, you're, you're very good at picking these out. Did you draw them yourself? This is this is actually uh, like specifically. See this pair here, James. Can you see the mouse? I can. Then uh, his nice tender rump, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> tender rump is right. <laughs> tender rump is right. So, Wait, did, did you have a point to make about his ass, or did you? Just no, no, no. I just wanted to, to bring bring everybody's attention to it. Bring everybody's attention to it. So here we go. <laughs> Are we immoralists harming virtue no more than anarchists harm princes? Only because the latter are shot at do they once more sit securely on their thrones. The moral. Morality must be shot at. <laughs> so Nietzsche is saying here that he's criticizing morality. He's not trying to get rid of virtue. He might not even be trying to get rid of morality. He's trying to suggest that we need to criticize this stuff and work towards an understanding of what's the right way to go forward. What's the right thing to do? How do we create virtue? So again, a frame he takes in is that virtue is health, happiness, health and happiness are tied, beauty, creation, the expression of profound will to power. Now, again, that's not, you know, go out and nut in every curtain you see until like the, your entire city is just caked. And, and stuck together or something like that. Dude, 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 if I invited you into my flat, which I might do at some point, and you just immediately nutted onto all of my curtains, you're not coming back. So in that case, morality is valuable because it's it's hard, it's it's too much hardwired in me to not want to see your crusty nut. I would I would absolutely like stick them all together and permanently leave your house as this like shadowy den with no light. And you and you'd Thank always remember. Christ. <laughs> you'd always remember. And so, so this this is what he's getting. I fucking lost my train of thought now because I was, I was talking about nothing or something like that. Yeah, he's not saying again that you can just go freely and go nothing everything. He's saying you must master these instincts and drive them towards a higher goal like Alexander the Great did. That's what great people do. They actually control their instincts. They don't suppress them. They control them, channel them towards something great. His criticism of Christianity, his criticism of slave morality is that it castrates that stuff. It says, no, this stuff is bad. It says this stuff must be pushed down. You cannot have higher goals because your goal should be the kingdom in the future that's never going to come. And the way that you get that is by sitting around and you do nothing. And that is a damning critique, I believe, because he is saying the archetype has been pathologized. So what we've got to do, if we were to think, if, you're, if you take what Nietzsche here is serious about and you want to understand what he's trying to say when he says reevaluation of, of all values, He's saying that there is no strict objective morality. People are, are terrified of this idea because they, they think it'll spiral, spiral into nihilism. 
but they have that's because they have a poor understanding of what, what morality is we don't get what morality is we think morality is doing good versus evil Nietzsche is saying morality is like the chess game morality is doing the right move versus the fucking wrong move that's all it's about it's not about anything else it's about doing the right move versus the wrong move and it's dictated, it's orientated, it's controlled by your goal. So if your goal is the kingdom at the end of the time, the right move is to be pious and the wrong move is to be evil. But if your goal is to build the Roman Empire again or something like that, the right move is to do things that will make the Roman Empire come into existence. Now, obviously, that might not mean nutting on James's curtains. And there you can make that decision. Will nutting on James's curtains bring me closer to building Rome? And James will say no, and I'll say yes. But of course, I'm wrong. No, so. it might do. You know, it might do. It might do. It might do because nothing on my curtains would cause you to face your fears. It would cause it, lots of fears. It would cause you to butt heads with me significantly, which you might come out stronger for. So you could actually make. I'm not defending this, but it, you could make a case. For stop! It. Stop convincing people to do this, man. <laughs> you get like loads of knocks. I'll send this. I'll go email every north in the world, and they'll all just like show up at your door. God, I'll wake up in the morning, look outside, well, like it's a really cloudy day out today. Oh fuck. All right, mate. Um, all right, mate. Do you mind if I seen your curtains for a bit? Got um, got a little, got a little present to give you, mate. A little <laughs> bit of a gift, you know. All right. So, um, so this is this is a very important thing to get the dynamic of what's going on here. Your morality is about is what's right and wrong is about what will bring you closer to the goal. So, what you need in place first is the goal. So, what you need to reclaim back from quote unquote slave morality is the goal that they present to you which is the afterlife and more specifically this returning kingdom where everything will be good look that's just that's just that's paralyzing you from acting so instead you need to be like oh what girl what do i want to do in this life this apparent world all right i want to do rome so what's the chess moves that will bring me there and so this was very very straightforward defeating your enemy good move thus correct enforcing the rule of law so again it's not about immorality it's actually about it could be about extreme morality in some senses it is about virtue good move therefore right being creative good move therefore right all these things will help you so you do them and it will show you that the world is actually built towards serving what you would call largely goodness like art great people great kingdoms great orders great law these things all serve these things all serve reality they exist in reality if you obey reality correctly you'll bring these things about so it's not about you know the way people read nietzsche nietzsche people get nietzsche so wrong because they're like yeah i'm free i don't need to do anything i can just go and i can just pester james to let me into his house for quote unquote unspecified reasons and that's not what it's about at all it is about being moral and um, but what's scary about this is that he suggests we don't need an objective god to, to, to condone us, to allow us to do this. It works perfectly fine if you're, you understand what you're doing. And our gods are simply really good psychological ways from understanding these phenomena that may be considered real in this sense. And Nietzsche often speaks about them as real in this way, but I will, I will talk about that in a different thing. His Nietzsche's understanding of gods, I actually don't think he doesn't believe in God, quote unquote. He believes in something akin to gods, but could be quite pagan. So this is the final conclusion. Following these premises, the entire basis for your morality should be your goal at the end, the kingdom you are aiming to build. The single biggest problem with slave morality is that they say a kingdom is in another dimension. Therefore, all the right actions of this morality are to wait passively and hope God will gift it to you. Worse, call it morality, because it implies that there is nothing you can do in this world to reach it, to break free from 
to break free from this scares people because they think they will spiral into a nihilistic hell. I'm just fucking repeating myself. And this and that hell does exist, but only if you don't switch to the correct morality, the morality of this world, which does create paradise and has been proven several times that the great empires have built in the past. So this morality we're talking about that does build it's it's all there. It's been proven. You you can see it. It's happened. Read history. It's there. The people who built these things they were monsters. The people who built Rome they were they were quote unquote evil birds of prey. People who built Greece quote unquote evil birds of prey. It's just the way it works. Like England, you know, as much as we want to say they were nice dudes, they went around, they conquered the world. They they did it in a nasty way. And the British Empire was a profound tool of creating order in the world. So they did it that way. As much as an Irishman doesn't want to admit it, they pulled something off quite fantastic there, got a hand it to them. They didn't do that by being nice. They didn't come in and, and be Christian towards us. They came in and they oppressed us. And that's just the way it was. And we were not strong enough to beat them. And so in some sense, we got what we had come into us because we weren't spent in the centuries the British were cultivating their power. We we were spending drinking. So there you go. Bad, bad move in the Irish part. Yeah, and at the, the very do drink. What? That's all the Irish ever do is drink. That's it. There's no, no profound comment on my behalf. I just have to <laughs> throw in my two cents there. So the very core of this is something extremely positive. And this is what I'm trying to drill home. People read Nietzsche and he's like a bleak nihilist. And to read Nietzsche is like, oh, he's cruel and evil and he's mean. And he's trying to fuck me up and all this. Dude, he's he not, wants he's... to eat babies, okay? That's, that's he... not nice. He wants to eat babies. He's saying something extremely positive, extremely benevolent, and extremely healthy. Nietzsche is showing you that your mind is full of ludicrous shackles that keep you in pain. Your belief that there is a, a, a kingdom at the end of time, which you're going to get saved from, is convincing you to do behaviors that destroy your virility, and that's making you sad. When you don't have an abundant healthiness, you suffer. Health is the opposite of suffering. This is sickness is not health. Sickness is not health, happiness. You can get yourself out of happiness, but you've got all these mental beliefs in you that are keeping you in pain. I, I like an even more practical example of this is that, like, for example, you want a girlfriend. And then instead of going out and actually going and talking to girls, you sit in your head and you say, girls like Chad alpha males that have six packs and six figures and, and their girls are evil and shallow and, and cruel and nasty and they only care about this stuff and so if I went out there they'd just be mean to me because they're evil and so I'm not going to do it I'm actually going to I'm going to be better than them I'm going to be moral I'm going to go in and I'm going to focus on myself and you know and keep um, keep my happiness in place and I'm not going to go out and go into that challenge in some sense and so your your beliefs to protect you admitting the one thing that you need to admit is that you're not good enough and you're not doing the things right is you you keep you make up these ideas you rationalize and Nietzsche is po poking hard at that function inside your head and he's saying that's your prison there's no there's no prison there's, this world is not the demiurge's prison there is no afterlife that's going to save you. Your head is your prison and you will do everything in your power to keep that from, from releasing you because you love your prison because it gives you meaning and you're scared of losing meaning. And that meaning is that at some, some day in the future, you're going to get saved. But the reality is if you could just jump into the chaos for a little bit and then realize that you're free to decide what future you want to manifest, you would actually create a new meaning that you could actually achieve and it would make you healthy. And that is an incredibly positive message when you actually understand it. If you could just let them go, you could actually try bring beauty, health and virility into the world. And those three things heal more than any promises have ever made. He's teaching you how to think like a winner. The formula of my happiness, a yes, a no, a straight line, a goal.
Twilight of the Idols. Oh, Jesus fucking more of this shit. All right, James, any thoughts on that before we close this off? Uh, lots of thoughts, yes. Um, best way of going about saying this. I wonder if you read the story of Abraham. Probably did, because he quite yeah, liked the he, old, he the definitely old did. Yeah, so, so the story of Abraham, if anyone's not familiar, teal deer version, God comes along and goes, Abraham, go do lots of shit. So Abraham goes and does lots of shit. And it's not for a promise of an afterlife, because the Jews don't really believe in an afterlife. But that's the same God as the Christian God. So again, I my contention with this comes specifically on his definition of Christian and whether or not it becomes non-functional when you start to say that implicit in the Christian faith is you can't go do what you want to do within boundaries of, you know, of sin. And again, this could be good life advice behind sin because lots of Christians have done that. So if his critique is against monks, I'm down. If his critique is against the average person who follows the word of Christ in their own life, like like most normal Christians do, then it's not a base critique as far as I'm concerned because they're not sitting there, not manifesting their vision for the world because they're waiting for an afterlife. It doesn't happen and evidence of that in not being implicit to the Christian God is in the story of Abraham. Um, I don't mean to be mean, but I do think you will have trouble properly seeing this stuff if you're always reasoning from a position where you already have a premise and that premise is that he's not allowed, he's not allowed prove in any way that Christianity might not be true. And that's going to make it very difficult to see what he's, he's in some sense saying it'll make you make it harder for you to see the nuance. Like he's not, I don't think, and I'll get to this at the very end. This would be my very last slide. So I have two slides left and this is the very last slide, which I'm actually going to suggest to you in some sense. Um, well, just just a quick thing on that. Nietzsche, he laid out a critique, at least you read out the critique, which is Christians have this problem, which is you're focusing on an afterlife. Therefore, you're not manifesting your vision in this life. And that's a pathology. So my counter to that is not trying to break down his presuppositions or defend mine, simply to say, I don't think that's true. All right. So do you have a vision? What, do you think Do you think it's right to build the British Empire? Again it's me personally that sounds fine okay. How, however there are lots of inbuilt things into that that fall out of the frame of Nietzsche versus Christ but yeah would you kill people to do that would I kill people to do it yeah would you go to war and kill people to no. make that happen no so how are you going to build an empire without killing people has that ever been done before yes like when <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, so for example, you bring up this juicy boy on the front and how lots of the more master type people would go into countries and kill them. It's funny that the uh, Christians actually were able to take over Rome, for example, without any of that happening. But what about all the pagans they killed after they took over Rome? Well, that's that's a separate phenomenon. That's, that's Well, that's... it's not separate now. We no, 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 it is. No, it is. Because you asked, you asked, has that ever been done before? And I said, yes. So when they got into power and then they consolidated their power through murder, you're telling me that's a separate phenomenon? Well, no, no, the two might be linked together. That's absolutely. I don't, I don't know about might, man. <laughs> Core premises: Can you influence somebody or a group of people without being violent towards them? You know, people have done that before. You take characters like Gandhi, where he wasn't a violent man and he managed to make huge political change. Now, I'm not. Now, I'm not saying that the British Empire could have been. I'm not that much of an idiot. So, the British Empire could have been built without going and 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 killing people, for example. But it begs it begs the premise of. Is the expansion of an empire implicitly evil? No. Is killing people to take their land explicitly evil? Well, you can make a case from that from Christian morality, yeah. And to, to say otherwise is to suggest that Nietzsche would think it'd be okay to go and kill weaker people. And if he's saying that, we can debate on that front. Until then, I'm not going to stray into that particular ground because it enters tentative territory.
Well, all, all I'm saying is that, like, I think all evidence suggests that in order to build an empire, you do need to do, you do need to be a bit bad. You do need to do some naughty things. You do need to, like, even the Christians, they took over Rome and it was actually quite inspiring how they took over Rome. They suffered. They took over Rome. But then the second they got into power, they started to turn, twist the knife. They started to, to murder people. They, like, they were no better. Oh, yes. they, they, 100%. They did it. And so it just goes to show that you cannot, at the very least, consolidate power without a bit of brutality, without a bit of meanness. And so the, the ideal that you can do everything in a good way, and it just doesn't work out in reality. And well, so the no, question... but then you've also got the question of brutality versus outright murder and taking people's taking people's property from them. Well, the Christians murdered pagans. Yeah, so I wouldn't be defending that, for example. That's what they did, though. Probably, probably. I mean, yeah, so this, this again, and my critique is not necessarily just on Nietzsche, it's on both sides of the equation where you've got to detach uh, doctrines and intentions from what actually takes place. So, and so did the early Christians have a lot of resentment? 100% do. 100%. To say that that's implicit to all Christians everywhere at the root of Christianity itself, that's my bone of contention because I don't think you can make that leap. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's suggesting that you can't build an empire without being a bit nasty. And he, like that that's just it. Like so if you believe that nastiness is evil, you can't be you can't be a real Christian and build an empire. And so the question then becomes oh, which do you sacrifice? That's fundamentally what I say here. Which do you sacrifice? Do you sacrifice the empire, the kingdom of this world that you want to build, the British Empire, say, or do you be be a good Christian and not do that and sit around and wait for the end of time when God will come and say, you didn't build that empire, you're the good person, I'm going to punish these people who did. And I think it comes down to that. I don't think there's any way around that. I think that's fundamentally what he's saying, is that the world is a bad place, it's evil place, it's owned by Satan, and that if you want to participate and build... The, the, the kingdom in this world you sort of have to obey him in some sense and that's not to say you're free from like it's that's not to say you're allowed be nasty like maybe you could take over in a more maybe you could even build an empire and it could be generally quite a well-built non-brutal empire but generally speaking it just does not work that way and there's going to be some blood spilt and it's going to be messy so uh, yeah yeah certainly and that's that's the way it tends to happen throughout history so it, it does beg that question, are there moral principles with which you should you should act? And to, to be honest, I think we've come to a point in the conversation where I my brain wants to get more answers from Nietzsche, such as, okay, if he's implying that building an empire is a good thing to do and a necessary thing is to go and kill people, how would Nietzsche have seen that manifest? You know, would would it be a case of we go and we invade France? I probably not because it'd be pan-European empire. But would, would we go into Africa and we forcibly take the, the land because that would be the ultimate great thing to do and he doesn't make it clear that that would be something he wants to do so arguing on the face of empires in an each example i don't think it's gonna be very functional well he's asking more of a, a very specific question i think it does boil down to this and i like boiling things down to very hard binary questions because they usually give a lot of insight you to build an empire you have to be mean you have to be bad you have to be cruel to be a christian you're not allowed to be mean you're not allowed to be bad you're not allowed to be cruel and you have to make a choice. You have to sacrifice your kingdom in the afterlife, your your access into power in order to build the kingdom in this world. Or you have to sacrifice the possibility of building this kingdom in this world in order to get the kingdom in the afterlife. I think that's a fantastically specific binary choice that does actually get to the root of the problem. And that's a hard choice. And I'm actually not, I'm not trying to say, James, you must choose to build the British Empire. Would you would you be surprised to to know that I actually would rather if you decided not to get to build the British Empire again and you were just like, let's just let's just be kind and all this. 
But but I think that's a good thing to chew on. I think that's a really good thing to chew on because I think it, it's that simple. No matter about the con the connotations, I think that's a very very good thing to think on. The same with the animals and the vegan thing. If everybody is divine, why aren't animals divine? And you're not allowed appeal to like you know God said that way or, or science said that way. Is there a way out of that? Or or maybe you are, but you have to say all right, maybe I'm I'm reaching a bit there. So yeah, I mean the empire. It is it's a very good question, and I'm not not trying to weasel out of it. Of course, I think it's a good question. But I also don't remember anywhere Nietzsche saying the highest value or something which we should do is to build uh, some kind of empire. I, I don't yeah, well, remember. Now, if, if he's implying that, that's fine. But then I would like to see something more than um, than implications on how that would become. Well, let's, let's just assume that I pulled that out of him. And if I'm wrong, you can you can go. You can. I was going to say spank, but maybe that's not the right word. <laughs> You can you can uh, you can punch me later if I've got it wrong. Okay. Uh, but but I would I would I would base it on that. He's he's essentially saying something along those lines. He's saying like just go with that. That's the simple way of describing it. He's saying, you know, as I said, our ability to envision a future kingdom is healthy. It's the thing that encourages us to set goals, to change reality. This corrupted this is corrupted in the week with their after kingdom idea which for now they don't even need to earn they simply wait piously and so that's there and you should you should strive towards that is that not setting up a master slave dichotomy once again because if you go and you do these things to other people you create slaves therefore by default you are masters and so and he also he didn't want you to become masters didn't want you to become slaves he wanted for some kind of ubermensch so my if we're talking about empire and Nietzsche's political philosophy that still confuses me as to what an ubermensch would look like considering they are distinct phenomena from masters so to just go build an empire as they've been built before you'd be creating the slaves and then it just the slave revolts would happen they would go do 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 unless you go full force where you just kill all the slaves <laughs> which is well, technically maybe. that's technically a solution but i don't think it's the solution he was going for well, see, as we've advanced, we've got less brutal towards the slaves. Like nowadays, everybody is is debt slaves, and like as much as you want to dance around it, it's like, oh no, we're all democratic and free and equal. It's like, dude, every person is born into thirty three thousand dollars of 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 debt slavery. Like yeah. we're we're all slaves now. It's just we don't get punished quite in the same way. So actually, the slavery we live under now is is way better than the way it was before. Way better. Um, unless you're in the Middle East, when, when a lot of the oil slavery that goes on there is pretty pretty rootless and all that stuff, but we're in a good place in that type of sense. So maybe maybe things can improve, but there's sort of premises behind that. Like maybe he's saying the Ubermensch is someone who understands that you need to be more prudent, you need to honor the slaves, or you can't just be fucking like Spartans towards them and just beat the shit out of them the whole time. But at the same time, you can't think like a slave. You can't think everything's going to happen in the afterworld. And, and maybe he's sort of suggesting that all the delusional brutality that we committed before is not nece- is not necessary. And the only way we can move forward is to actually take this serious from a very based understanding in some in some sense. So in which case, maybe the best king of all time would be the king of kings himself, Jesus Christ, considering he stamps out resentment. So the Ubermensch, yes, as mentioned before, be. might actually become christ that they're the two same things because it is it is interesting very much good the uber mention wasn't master morality so there must be a specific distinction you know so to pragmatically act so that you don't create resentment in the necessarily created lower classes would be the exact same thing as christ maybe (laughs) like so i did say before that that's a possibility but i'm trying to help the boyos save face with that i think nietzsche could be suggesting that the problem with masters is that they're naive and all he's saying is that in order for us to develop a true master morality, a true great 
group of people and an ubermensch and all that is you need to get someone who has the instincts of like a savage viking but the prudence and i guess you could say intellect of of uh someone who you consider a slave so they take these great instincts and they actually train them towards getting something good done in life you know so someone who's integrated their shadow would you say like I don't like using Jungian terms. I think it's clunky and it's it's jargon. But some maybe something along those lines. Well, yeah, look I mean, a lot of our audience so far has seen the Ion stuff. So just to put it in perspective, you know, having gone through that that process where you become aware of your capacity for darkness and your want for darkness, but you don't allow yourself to splash out on it. Instead, you transmute it into something else. Yes, yes. James, could you read this? I got to go for one second. I'll be back in a sec. This is a reading of our psychology the pathologizing of archetypes designed to serve us. Our ability to envision a future kingdom is healthy. It encourages us to set goals and change reality. But this is corrupted in the weak into the after kingdom, which for now they don't need to earn, simply wait piously. Furthermore, our happiness, being so sensitive to meaningful pursuit and physical health, is destroyed by these moralities of weakness. Getting frozen into a state of inaction, waiting for a kingdom that will never come, all the while cursing everything felt within you, turns you on your body, turns you on your potential, and destroys your happiness. Mary Faustina Kowalska said, whoever the hell that is, if the angels were capable of envy, they would envy us for two things. One is receiving Holy Communion, and the other is suffering. Our success is at stake here, our happiness and our future. And this expands to the whole society. This is not an offer to descend into nihilism, that's a consequence of not having a tangible goal. We are vulnerable to rationalization, delusion, and worst of all excuses. But if we overcome them, we can set our amazing brains towards actually bringing, which I can't read, heaven into being. Which do we sacrifice? Stefan, have you returned from whence you have came? Because I can hear you snuffling around the dirt like a pig looking for truffles. I assume you're talking to me, yeah? <laughs> yes. Hello. Did you, did you enjoy your time away? Yes, it was, it was fantastic. So, yes, there you go. And that is um that is that question. I think that sets up essentially what I was asking there, like what do we sacrifice? And again, look, uh, never mind about the 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 unknowables. Like what is what is the afterlife? What is the future and all that stuff? We're we're in a, a very difficult place as a human where we we can't really know for sure what's going on, but I do think what you can take out of this out of everything Nietzsche is saying is that you have a vulnerability where you are tend you tend to rationalize you tend to f allow yourself to become delusional you tend to make excuses you tend to bullshit yourself and you do it because it's comfortable because it's easy so if you want to take something practical out of this you are vulnerable to making things simple for yourself when you could make them you could aim high and work towards that stuff in a very very straightforward way you could just make it about winning you could stop thinking about like absolutes things that, that are, are difficult to know unknowable and all this and you could just say how do i achieve a victory in this life the life that i'm living and with the promise the guarantee nearly that it will make you happier in some sense and i know everybody's like oh success doesn't make you happy and all that and i guess the attitude i like to take is that well at the very least find out you know go there figure it out and if it turns out it doesn't make you happy well then you can always turn to something else and say well i'm gonna you know get my meditation or my prayer or something like that as well but at the very least understand this this i guess is the shadow of um a lot of people's mindset that success is quite straightforward it's quite objective when you win you win it's very clear what's going on 
And in order to do that, you need to develop what we call a winner's mindset. And that is about making clear choices and hard decisions and whatnot. And uh, Nice picture. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And so this is the final lecture. Jesus, we finally got to it. A small note to the boyos who have found solace in Big J. If Christ has helped you find stability in your life as a symbol of order, reason, logos, and has allowed you to act assertively and effectively in the world, in a sense, protecting you from eros, chaos, and nihilism, do not fret over this high-tier critique I'm getting into. Even Nietzsche is saying that our belief systems need to help us, quote, inspire us to act in the world and live. If logos and Christ has done that for you, then it is good enough. Christ dying for the truth is an incredibly inspiring story. Use that inspiration. In some sense, inspiration is more valuable than understanding everything about our situation because inspiration creates action. So whatever inspires is good. We can only reach the truth through action. It is an experience, not a knowledge. And uh, I think that does some credit to addressing what James is talking about, where Christians do live strong powerful lives and that's absolutely true and if you see a christian living well well you don't get to just turn around like you know i don't get to put on my fedora and become overweight and not shave and then see a christian with a family muscle you know a, a job like i think taylor marshall is one i always talk about he's like just baby book baby book baby book and he's, yeah. he's flying he's producing like he's being a master he's creating i don't get to turn to him and be like oh such a slave man <laughs> like it's just that is the most pathetic thing you can ever do that's not how things work at all you can't do that and so if it's working for someone it's fine but um do take nietzsche's critique serious that maybe maybe uh, maybe it might not be true who knows or maybe we've 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 misinterpreted what christ said but do not allow yourself to get too caught up in stuff that will paralyze you i guess what he's trying to say is Focus on what will take you to victory more than anything, because what he tends to be describing is the mindset the Romans had. The Romans were very pragmatic people. They were like, we like our only goal is to win. Our only goal is to build our kingdom. And they created profound amount of law and order. Like they, they created a profound amount of virtue. And it was all coming from this mindset we're describing here. Like a lot of it was this, this is this is pretty much how most of the elites thought in that sense. And they created something we admire to this day. And we respect to this day. So it's not um, correct for us to be too critical of that. Like Christianity doesn't even have the luxury of being critical of Rome because Christianity would be nothing without Rome, you know? Um, and on that, I think you can see my face. James, where is any thoughts? Where is your any, face? Uh, stop. Any thoughts, sir? I've got lots of thoughts. I think, uh, it's, it, again, it's like, I think Nietzsche's right. I think Nietzsche's wrong. It's like, it's Nietzsche. Like, I'm not, I'm not as smart as Nietzsche. I'm not as well-read as Nietzsche and anything. So this is all, it's all conjecture. But it's, it's, it looks to be devastating in terms of the history of morality and the psychological insights behind how we act. My bones of contention throughout this have been uh, at my perceived straw mans or grouping together of what Christian means. But apart from that, it looks to be, Overall, quite inspiring. It's a very jarring thing to first get your head around. But once you read through it, you know, when he says, for example, that there's no punishment, you shouldn't have punishment and no guilt. And he gets that in the second essay. So that's that's quite a scary thing to get your head around because that's what life is premised on, essentially. 
once you get around that, he is having a doctrine of being free. And I think you, you brought up very good points there from when you're saying that lots of current 4chan nihilists come out of the woodwork and go, well, Nietzsche said this, so I can just masturbate all day. It's like, no, he wasn't saying that at all. Like, if you read his works properly, at the end of The Gay Science, for example, he has a whole series of poems called The Songs of Prince Volga Fry, which means the, the, <laughs> the Songs of Prince Free Bird. I think. And it's all about how free and how glorious his soul is and all of this stuff. And, you know, and he wrote as Dionysus, which was a god and he was poetic and metaphorical. So that is what he's trying to strive towards. So at the end of the day, to take this properly, you aren't going to be left in the dark. You'll be left without a hand to hold. But it is a it is an inspiring message at the end of the day. Um, yeah, I actually really am trying to say that. Like I fundamentally am trying to say it's inspiring. It's 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 a freedom tool. I, I guess if I was to say I'm doing anything with this is I meet so many people who read Nietzsche and they, they have this bleak pessimistic attitude towards the world. They believe, you know, they have this nihilism in them. They believe that they've, they've grasped Nietzsche and Nietzsche has taught them how to be nihilistic and that's given them a gravitas like people. And they're like, they're able to critique everything and they understand how bleak the world is. And Nietzsche empowers them in that sense. But I don't think he's saying that at all. And as I said, that example of the, the thriving Christian, you, you gotta, you gotta hold that in some sense to to it's the candle to that and i've um i do i do think it is about developing that winner's mindset and pulling yourself free of the rationalizations of repeating myself again but that that is yeah it's, it's a good point and um and that's what's up let's uh let's check out what's going on here cool yeah if you want to check in with, with the boyos we've got a few questions to answer from the old the old patreon beautiful beautiful joshua boardman as a man curian i can verify there are three gregs in close proximity Tom Veltheisen, love your eye on series. What's up? Laszlo, you fucking shtag. Machun, degenerates need a doy. Danny Roberts, Jesus Christ. <laughs> What's a doy? Oh, I thought you said die. Oh, no, no, no. Degenerates need to die. It's like, well, maybe enough, maybe that's maybe. in a North accent. Degenerates need a doy. Yeah, it could be actually. Yes, yes. But Kelly, yeah. So Kelly's saying this all sounds like modern day liberalism. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Ivor, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> Laszlo's giving out about vegans and all that. What is up, people? How are you doing, people? How is life? And yeah, we've got loads of people here. Loads of people. What's going on? A practical application of ancient young be wise, I get, or would that defeat the point of the channel? That being get up to my level, not at all. I, I am I actually was trying to drive home a practical understanding of Nietzsche there. Like on the on the broadest cultural sphere, he is saying, think like a winner, and this is how you do it. And unfortunately, quote unquote, slave moralities are pulling you away from that. But in a practical sense, like in your real life, if you want to just get rid of all that afterlife nonsense and like religion, you're like, oh fuck this stuff. You can actually take everything I just talked about and use it as an individual sense. I'd say regardless of what you believe about the world take that serious know that you rationalize know that you resent and know that you should at all points focus on winning 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 maybe the 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 astral stuff you forget about a little bit but set your morality up towards winning in your life like what what's the correct behaviors that will bring me forward and and, and critic critique them in that way and it's actually very simple to do it's extremely effective 
Yeah, I have met nihilistic Christians before who terrified the hell out of me. So it actually, it does beg the question whether or not Christians in Nietzsche's day were different to Christians today. Maybe they all were all some kind of um, death cult. But no, I've met people who would literally gather on Saturdays and Sundays just to sit and pray and wait for God to kill them. Like, just wait for the end times. It's like, right. I, can, I, can, I understand the critique there, dude, where it's like they are wasting their lives. In many ways, missionaries, not necessarily missionaries, because missionaries can do good work, but the type of people who will just like abandon their families and specifically stop people outside like places just to recruit them to come sit and pray with them all day. We've all met those type of people. And that I can definitely get the critique on that front. It's just it's a waste of human potential. Yeah, I guess that's what he's getting at is um you gotta avoid that. So this has been a long one, people, but I do think the conclusions you can draw from what he's saying here are life-changing if you run them. Like it is fucking nuts what he's saying. So James, if you have any questions, I guess we've got to wrap this up because we've been going talking about Norths for almost two and a half hours. Yep, there's a there's a question for you, and there's a question for me from the old Patreon. So first question comes from uh, Magenta, and she sends an essay. But we won't answer it in essay form. She basically says, what's the logos in heavy, loud rock? So can you talk about logos <laughs> within music, essentially? Is there is there logos to music? And in all music, is there logos? Well, there's objectively, there's logos in music. Like, if you take... The profound thing about music is... And I, maybe this could be a critique of Nietzsche, if you will. If you take music, if you take harmony, and you understand that mathematically certain sounds work together and other sounds do not work together, there, there's there's something there's something undeniable. Like, it's physical. It's real. The, the the good sound of music is the beauty of music is a representation of the order imprinted like the fingerprint of god into reality and you cannot violate that in any way at all and so anything that generally f follows that is got a logos to it if you will but like rock music some people be like oh it's a bit crazy in the in the sense that it's loud and all that stuff uh it doesn't it doesn't translate that logos that much it, if it follows the laws of music and it sounds good yeah, it's there. And I guess if they're following the laws of rhythm, which uh, rock music tends to do more than anything, yeah, then then they're, they're, they've got a logos. They've got a harmony. They've got a beauty. Any thoughts, James? Yeah, so why does heavy metal, for example, to me, sound so terrible? You know, maybe it's I not heavy, it. heavy metal, but the one where um, the people, they don't sing. They just go, oh, this is wow. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. that. Because I just listen to that. I'm like, this makes me feel ill. It makes me dyspeptic in Nietzsche's terms. I so like is it. There, is there a I logos like to that? Probably, but it's not to my taste. So do well, I a lot of the question, there has to be logos for it to be music, right? Or else it's just atonal shite. So, but yeah, well, see, yeah, see, this is it. That that heavy metal is an atonal. Like if you were to listen to something mm. truly atonal, it's it really is shit. Like it's just oh, what yeah. he's doing. And Miles Davis sometimes branches into that a little bit. Like he's got a famous tune called Bitches Brew and everyone's like, it's so fantastic. And you kind of listen to it and you're like, it's not really that fantastic, is it? It's just a guy blowing the trumpet sort of out of tune, it sounds like. <laughs> It's, it just doesn't sound like he's doing it right. You're sort of like, oh, the guy's learning, is he? But people are like, this is the peak of jazz. And you're like, uh, maybe I'm just too uncultured, perhaps. But um, but this is, a, this is a tough one because the Greek myth of Pan and Apollo, you have Pan, who is the local folk music player, and Apollo, who's the fucking profound classical composer. And they have a challenge to see who writes a better song. And Apollo writes this great song. And everybody's like, this is brilliant. And Pan plays this song and everybody's like, it's shit. But Pan says... I like it. And he runs out the door saying, I just won the competition. And he keeps on playing his tune. And all the rest of them are just stuck. Like all the rest of the gods are stuck back in the city being like this fucking idiot. Like he, th he thinks he won that. Like, are you serious? But it goes to show uh, there, there is a, you can, you can have lower levels of logos if you will. I don't think, um, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. 
there's a question. You can answer this as well. <clears throat> this comes from Laszlo. He says, uh, what have you encountered so far as the biggest mysteries or unanswered questions in the theory of evolution? Oh, Jesus uh, Christ, yeah, dude. Um, abiogenesis is the biggest one. That's not implicit to evolution itself, but abiogenesis, which is how life went from non-life to life, because that distinction is not obvious. We've got things like the RNA world hypothesis, but it's a hypothesis, so that's still technically a mystery. And also how, and there's, there's no evidence as far as I can tell for how this worked, going from asexual to sexual reproduction. That's also incredibly weird, and I do not understand how that works at all. <laughs> Those were the two biggest ones. What about you? Apart from apart from your stance, which is evolution is just crap, isn't it? All right, mate. Just, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a, like a, a creationist or anything. We just don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Darwin was a bit I, of a nonce, wasn't he? I uh, Darwin was a bit of a fucking puffer, man. From Southlow. Um, I'm not. Look. I guess one thing that James told me about, like when we're discussing evolution, <laughs> one thing I have heard about is the problem between how does dead rocks go to apogesis, I think it's called, or something like that. Apogenesis. Uh, abiogenesis, yeah. Abiogenesis. How to go from dead rocks and RNA to like, you know, a uh, uh, walking turkey or whatever the fuck it is that came next. How that happens, I have no idea. It doesn't seem to make sense. I think there is this sort of weird. Um, implication that it, it, I don't know. I don't know how to make sense. This is very advanced stuff philosophically. You're thinking about big stuff. If the universe came out of nothing, then evolution obviously could have come out of nothing. But if it didn't, then it must have come out of something. And so, deciding that binary was it caused or was it not caused? That's a fucking hard one. And I'm just a boy. -o. I don't really know. And I've actually started to tune out of a lot of those conversations from getting back into Nietzsche again, which is like, I fleshed that stuff out and I was like, wow, these are big questions and I didn't really understand them before, but now I'm reeling in. Cause again, Nietzsche is sort of suggesting like focus on winning, bro. Like just think of it that way. Does it really matter so much? If you understand, know for certain what's going on with evolution, you're probably never going to know for certain the people who figured everything, like people who achieve stuff don't tend to know. Not like truth is not as useful as you make it out to be. It's more about, the experience of achieving, of accomplishing and all that. So I'm starting to move more into that vibe. I, I don't know that what's going on with evolution. I'm willing to accept the scientific dogma for the time being. And I will uh, I will probably not research too much anything else. Um, but it could, maybe the scientific dogma could have got it wrong. Who knows? I don't know. But uh, I'm just, I'm moving away from that stuff a bit. That's incredibly. I can go Nietzsche psychologist on you and reveal everything. <laughs> oh, shit. But, but in other words, Laszlo, you're an idiot for asking such questions. You should have asked, "How do I become a juicy boy?" So you you uh, you have you you have your answer. All right. That's, yeah, that's how, how, fuck evolution. How do you evolve yourself? There's the fucking question. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Okay, that's it for the Patreon stuff. Did you want to check in with the boys? Read anything out, or should we close up? I think I think we should close up because this is going to look like another just Titanic beast. Um. Do money, Laszlo. They're all the boys. Change the world. What's the crack again, people? Gents, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna wind out. We're gonna wind out. Thank you very much for your time, and we will see you later. Bye bye. Bye bye.